Welcome, friends. Welcome to another episode of the Renegade Joint Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent at Renegade Realty Group here at Keller Williams. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, first of all, it's this damn podcast that you're listening to right now, but also it's a monthly meeting where once a month we get together. Right now we're meeting at Shields in Southfield. First Tuesday of every month. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. This network is about, or this group is about networking and doing deals. No guru bullshit from the front. No smell of stale coffee, Ben Gay, or fucking disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. Those dark, little dingy, sad, fucking boring ass rooms. If you're ever interested, did I sell that hard enough today, folks? If you're ever interested in attending a local meeting, besides just listening to the sultry sounds of my voice right here on the podcast, go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Legal disclaimer, in no way, shape, or form should anything that I or any of my guests say today be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decisions, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals, perhaps grow up, be an adult, and don't fucking sue me. All right, time for the show quote of the week, week where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And since we're talking about rehabbing and contractors and all that, we're definitely going to be talking about problems. So I went with Norman Vincent Peale. Every problem has in it the seeds of its own solution. If you don't have any problems, you don't have any seeds. Probably the nicest way I can put it. And I have three guests today. I have Mr. Carson McGuire began investing nine when he was nine years old. When he purchased his first hundred dollars in Ford stock, he started reliable snow and lawn care at sixteen and grew it to 165 weekly cuts. Sold that in 2016. He attended the University of Detroit Jesuit High School and he also graduated from Michigan State University. He started investing in real estate in 2013. He buys, fixes, flips, and rents mostly in Hazel Park, Oak Park, Madison Heights. Did I get that correct? All right. And you can reach out to him. You go to facebook.com forward slash Ridge Investment Properties or go to his website, carsonbuyshouses.com. Then I have Mr. Tommy O'Neill. Both these people have been on the podcast too. For the last 30 years, Tommy's been a landlord, builder, developer, rehabber um, from Seattle, Washington, New Orleans, and the Republic of Panama, and now Detroit. Tommy moved here in 2014, here being Detroit, to take advantage of all the opportunities this market has. Before real estate, he was an audio engineer. In 1984, he started Seismic Audio and built live sound gear, rented it to bands, clubs, tours, festivals. He buys, fixes, flips, wholesales, land contracts, lease options, you name it. He's done it. Tommy, T-O-M-I-E, at IPM Detroit, or go to IPMDetroit.com. You can always hit him up on his cell, 504-975-2300. And then Mr. Eric Friday, father of two, born and raised in Detroit, Michigan, wholesaler, flipper, buy and hold investor, graduated from Henry Ford High School and received a bachelor's degree from ITT Technical Institute. He has worked multiple jobs while in and out of college and started his career as an engineer in 2012, and he started investing in Detroit real estate in 2015 to get out of the rat race and be able to spend more time with his family. All right. So that's uh, Facebook. It's just Eric Friday. On Instagram, he's Real Estate Friday, and you can always go to Detroit, D-E-T, D-E-T, PropertySolutions.com, D-E-T, PropertySolutions.com, or you can email him there, Eric at... DETPropertySolutions.com. Thank you, guys. 
Thank you. Thanks Thank for you for us. coming. All right. This is like a part two in our theme podcast. And this oh, week, two yeah, <laughs> this week we're doing rehabbing because that seemed like a good one. I get a ton of questions all the time. It's easy. <laughs> Piece all of right, cake. Let's go to lunch. There we go. All right, everybody. That's it for this week's podcast. I hope you had a great time. Remember, it's easy. <laughs> go out and crush it. Now, all, all joking aside, I call flipping hero money. It's hero work. It's also the worst goddamn thing you could ever do, and it tortures you till they get to the end, and then you get your little reward at the end, like the good mouse for hitting the lever, right? <laughs> Hopefully, if you did it right, cash drops from the lever, and you go, that's why I did this. <laughs> that seems relatively accurate, right? Very much so. Yeah, like running a marathon, but you didn't train for it, but somehow you still got to finish it. I've also been there. <laughs> <laughs> so I get a ton, a ton of questions about this, and you guys have rehab properties, and you have very different ways of rehabbing properties. And I have a lot of great questions. But before we go into it, I'll start with Carson first. Kind of talk about how you started rehabbing properties and kind of where you're at now. Because I think yeah. some people think we all start like just banging on all cylinders and everything going right too. And just to give people an idea of your perspective, and then we'll just go down the line. Yeah. So when I started buying from in 2013, probably from 2013 to 2000. 16 it was just one to three homes a year so such a small amount i would do 90 percent of the work myself um i would sub out electrical plumbing and some of the major systems but other than that i'd slave away usually at night if i was in school or had the landscape company starting out in 2016 and 17 i started to scale the flipping business so I went from one rehab at a time to two to three at a time to five to ten at a time so as i've grown bigger i've tried to do less and less not always very successfully in terms of hands-on but now in 2018 i bought 22 homes sold 19 flips so it was a lot of building up an in-house crew trying to find a lot of good subcontractors so today working on 13 rehabs only two full-time guys which is way too light and then relying on a lot of subs and still relying on way too much of my labor. Subs, subcontractors, right? So you started with a lot of sweat equity shit, just doing it all yourself. Yeah. And then as you've progressed, you've kind of worked your way in a couple full-time guys and still subbing a bunch of stuff. And still doing a lot of work myself. All right. Bunch of projects going on. Mr. Tommy O'Neill, where'd you start and where are you kind of well, at now? I've always been a landlord. So in the <clears> beginning, <throat> I used to just fix up my own houses to rent. And I've done that continuously for the last 30 years. So like Carson, I did everything myself. I know how to do everything. And with scale, you know, you have to find other people to help you. And therein lies the rub. And so now I have four rehabs going, eight more on deck. I don't know. Maybe I've done 10, 12 this year already. How many you got? You got a couple of full time employees, or you get mostly sub out? No, I got three full time guys, and and then yeah, I have a bunch of subs, and we also have a property management company. So like Carson, I'm spread way too thin. Do we, do either one of you hire general contractors, or do you just do all the subbing yourself? I have. When I first started out, it was sub. I, the idea was to sub everything out, and then that became a pain in the ass, and then it was okay, if I just find one good GC, that's my golden ticket. I went through a few GCs and realized how much 
more potential risk a general contractor brings is they can hold up your money and hold up your time if they have an entire project. So then I went from thinking GC was the way to go back to subcontractors and trying to build the in-house team. So at this point, I have one GC that I'll use every now and then, but I try to stick away from it as much as I can. Tommy? Yeah, as far as like general contractors, I agree. They, they have too much control over the project. And so, you know, you got to really hassle them. So my deal now is I'm like Carson, lots of subs, a couple full-time guys, and basically we're the project managers like the GCs. Mr. Eric Friday, where'd you start? Where are you at right now? Kind of how do you do it? Uh, so I started with my first rental in 2015, um, and it was a really cheap rental, um, and I was basically doing all the stuff myself. Um, I did sub out like the system, the plumbing, the um, electrical, but most of the general work I did, um, that was kind of my start. And like I said, that was a rental. And then I transitioned into wholesaling and my, I, my thought process was to always flip. Um, so then I got the first flip. And for that one, um, I subbed out everything. I didn't do any of the work in that property. Um, I didn't have a GC per se, but I had um, a different contractor for just about every part of the project. Got it. All right. So you guys all went sweat equity right out of the gate. Seems to be very popular. I never did sweat equity, but that's probably because I don't know how to do any of this shit besides paint. And the Navy kind of broke me on painting. Like, I painted enough shit in the Navy. I don't need to paint anything ever again. I'm still traumatized by it. All right. So this should give our listeners a pretty good idea on how you guys are approaching it and where you started and where you're at now. And we have some. Excellent questions, I gotta say. We have some funny ones. I'll throw some funny ones in if we get to the, we got, we got time for it. But uh, if you ever wanna, if you're listening and you ever wanna submit a question, you can always send me an email, jeremy at renegadedetroit.com. Or what I do is I post in a Metro Detroit real estate investors group when I'm gonna do a podcast where you can ask them questions too. So if you haven't joined that group, Go ahead and do it. But we got some excellent questions. I'm just going to start in the order which I received them. So this is from the Metro Detroit Real Estate Investors Group. And I'm addressing this to everybody because I'm sure we're going to start a ton of conversations about it. But this one's from Mr. Sean Smith, my excellent fishing buddy, whom I love. We just slayed walleye again last weekend. Mm, By the way, if you guys want any some, um, he asked about estimating rehab costs. Uh, he wanted to know how you guys estimate your rehab costs when you're you're doing a walkthrough, and whoever wants to start can. Uh, well, I wholesaling for me was what really helped me get a general idea of what uh, the cost would be, and then obviously doing it. Um, I think the me having the rental to start with let me know kind of what materials will cost, and then hiring certain people out kind of gives you an idea of what labor will cost. Um, I don't feel like like a lot of people have like uh, scripts, not scripts, but like templates and stuff for what stuff will cost, which I think that does help. But until you really get multiple quotes from people and then you actually do the work, it's kind of hard to have a, a real good idea of an estimate for rehab. I think kind of the best way to do it is just to start. Once you start the rehab, you'll get those numbers and then you just keep track of them so that you know moving forward what a good price is and a good value for your rehab. Okay. So you, but you're in your mind, like, okay, now I've done 
a couple bathrooms, this is what a bathroom costs, yeah. right? I have a typical idea of, so if someone comes in with a ridiculously high number, I kind of know, okay, that doesn't make sense. Or if someone's lower, I know the same thing. So, And obviously it depends on level of finish yes, yes. too, and right? So quality of work and person and all that. Yep. Okay. Do you put it like on a spreadsheet or break it out to like a price per I do square have foot it, or how do you do? Uh, I do have it in a spreadsheet, but honestly, like now I can walk through a house and kind of get an idea of what it's going to cost to rehab in yeah. my head. It's fun being there, isn't it? Yeah. 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 It was painful to get there though. Yeah. <laughs> but now, now you go on a wholesale appointment in an hour, right? Yeah. 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 Cause you could do the whole thing, sign contract and everything wrapped yeah. up 30 minutes, walking out yeah. to the next one. Sometimes so. before I even get there. Yeah. Right. What about you guys? Where I walk a house 15 minutes and then I'll spend three or four minutes in the car taking my notes out on my phone and just break down roof, kitchen, bath, floors. Yeah. Yep. Most of my homes are all a thousand square feet, 1200 square feet. Kitchens cost the same. Bathrooms cost the same. So I usually come up with a pretty round number, 20, 25, 30, up to 50 within a few minutes. Yeah. It's taken time to get there. Trial and error. But that's how I do it now. Pretty informal, quick and dirty, but you win some and you lose some. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I, when I walk it, you guys, so you guys have a, like a, a template though that you're working from. Cause you, like in your case, Carson, all your houses are for the most part within what a thousand to 1500 square yeah, feet. Yeah. Right. Eric. It's maybe 1600, but yeah. I know Tommy though. He's our <laughs> wild card here. I know you guys will go 800 square feet to 3,500 square feet all across the city, balls to the wall. But Samuel, how do you how do you do? So I, I have a price list that I've worked on over time. I also have an Excel spreadsheet so I can count everything. And like these guys, you know, I've been doing it a long time, and I got some rough square foot numbers that I've kept track on the last couple home runs that you sold for me and we broke records. So I got a price per square foot charge. So between all of that, you know, I can come in with a number, but you know, like the two of them, you know, it doesn't take long to know if it's a deal or not now. Well, to me, it sounds like, so Carson and Eric don't really break down to a price per square foot because they're working within a range of square feet. And you kind of had to do an extra step because you're working in so many ranges that you'll actually take the time to break it down into some sort of price per square foot to take into account the larger house. Would that be correct? Yeah, or? that is. And also we do rentals, you know, at least half or more rentals and high-end flips. So the, those two numbers are completely different on a finished level. So Okay. Well, I'm going to throw in a sub-question because – I know how I did it, but I'm curious how you do it. So obviously we walk the wholesale deal or potential flip, right? We come up with numbers, usually pretty quick, make our offer, get it accepted. And then there's some refinement of some sort of the numbers afterwards. I want to do a little bit more exploring. Obviously you walk it, take some notes. You already know in your head, you got some price per square foot or you have multiple projects you can compare it to, right? How do you tighten it up after your offer's been accepted and you're getting ready? I don't. I fucking love that. <laughs> if I'm wrong, I don't want to know I'm wrong until the day I sell it. If I'm right, then I'll know that I'm right. I, I don't track it very much once I'm into it. Whatever, it doesn't, wh- however my original budget is, that I don't take that into consideration when I make decisions on what to do in the house. 
already know what needs to be done to sell it for top dollar. And that kind of, that's the leading decision factor throughout the whole project. If I'm over budget, I'm over budget. I'll still do whatever I need to do to set top dollar. All right. So you just don't fucking worry about it. Like you just start. Out of sight, out of mind. It is what it is. (laughs) Tommy? Yeah. I I would say certainly on the, on the flips. I mean, you got to get it to the level that you're going to, that you're going to be at. And, and now things are competitive. If you're not, you know, if you don't have something that's really nice or has added features, which has always been my thing, you know, your, your house is going to sit and then, you know, you wish you would have spent the extra five grand cause you just lost five grand cause it's been on the market. And now you got to have the price go down, blah, blah, blah. We've all been there. And so I think that, you know, spending a, a few extra grand, even when you didn't budget it, to get the thing across the finish line is definitely, definitely good on the retail flip side. All right, Eric. Uh, no, I definitely don't do that. Oh, <laughs> I'm not a, I'm, it's not a luxury of mine to do that. Um, I'm very conservative with my rehabs, rehab numbers though. So I know a lot of people will, I'll see them post and they'll say 25,000 rehab. And I'll look at that and I'll say, that's at least 40. My, my rehab. Cause like Tommy says, I don't, when I'm rehabbing, it's a nice house. It's not just paint, carpet, some granite in the, it's a nice house. So I have to account for that. So I'm automatically thinking a conservative rehab number. But then also after that, if the, once the offer and maybe prior to the offer being accepted, I'm drilling down a scope of work to drill down those numbers. Um, and part of that for me also is I use a lot of private money for my deals. So I like to provide that to them so that they have a clear idea of what I'm, it's not just a number on a piece of paper. They're, they can kind of look at those numbers and see where I got to it from. Um, I think when you're using your own money, it's a little bit easier to just say, you know, this is what I budgeted for. If I got to do something extra, just go ahead and do it. Um, like I say, in my case, majority of the time I'm using private money. So I want to make sure that they're protected and I have that scope of work and I have those numbers kind of drilled down so that um, when I present it to them, I'm getting the money. Um, and then if there is a chance where I do have to go over budget. I typically go into my money to do that. Mm. What well, that brings up my to next, get the deal, yeah, I mean, to get the highest price point. Yeah. That does suck. You have to do yeah. that sometimes, yeah. but that's I've, yeah, I've got to do it. Some of those flips have been just wholesale profits. Yep, because of that's I don't want to sit on it. Yeah, that's the worst thing in the world. What do you guys have for a contingency, or what? Like a lot of times, I'll throw in for me on a Detroit flip. Anyway, whatever my numbers are, then I'll throw on a five k Detroit factor. Right, like something's blight, blight. I'm gonna get a blight ticket and get screwed on that. I'm gonna, uh, and something's gonna, somebody's gonna steal the furnace, right? Like, I don't know what it is, but somebody's gonna hit me with something in the back of there. But how do you guys handle, I don't know, just in case shit, shit you miss, shit you can't see? Do you, do you put a factor in on your rehab numbers or what do you guys do? I do, and really, it's, it's not a set 5k or 10k, it kind of depends on the house. If it's something that, you can just tell it's a 1970s home on a slab. It's so simple and easy. If I run my numbers and I come up to 22, maybe I bump it up to 25. If it's a house, depending on the city, I have to pull permits. I might add 5K just for permits and all the extra work that I'm going to have to do and hoops to jump through. But usually 5K is probably the average. If it's a really big rehab or a house that's a pain in the ass to finish out, then I might add 8, 10K just to kind of manipulate the numbers more on the front end. So it's worth it even more on the back end. Mm. Tommy. 
Yeah, it's got to be a solid 10%, especially if it's a 1,500 or bigger square foot house because we all know something's going to go wrong. You're going to tear something apart or you're going to need a new stack all the way to the third floor, you know, blah, 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 you know, so. Yeah, it's usually rehab problems, but as we found out, it's sometimes fucking people problems, too. My God, that's going to be a story someday. I haven't had that one happen before. Neighbors so bad. I had multiple people reach out to me from the neighborhood to let me know. They threw a party again at the house, and they had stuff all across the lawn, and they're parking over there. If you don't do something about it, it's going to get – I'm like, my God. I don't know what you do about that. Yeah, I, I don't know either, but that was a 20 That was a new problem. 20K yeah, they, they killed time. us. They killed us. At least 15. They definitely hurt us. So, Eric? Uh, yeah, typically standard 10%. I might go higher um, depending on the project in the house. If I feel that I'm opening walls or um, there's a, a lot of maybe unforeseen possible damage, I'll add in more like if I see there has been some leaking on the roof or something and I haven't opened the wall up, but I know I'm going to, I know that might um, cause for more damage, structural damage. So I'll, t- I'll take that into account and increase the budget. Um, but yeah, typically 10%. At minimum, just for unforeseen things. Well, something I used to do when I rehab too is the bigger the rehab, the more the contingency I would throw in. And then I would throw in um, basically like a hassle factor too. Because I think when some people are looking at the spreadsheet and they see the ARV, the purchase price, and the rehab, and they think so long as that number is good on the other side. But the fact of the matter is if the rehab number is bigger than the purchase price, or anywhere remotely close to it, it's going to take longer to get it to the market. You're more likely to miss things. Like it just, so I always threw in a little bit more of a like, well, fuck, that's a huge ass rehab mm-hmm. factor. Mm-hmm. So that was me personally. So ran to an investor who likes to make half of what for profit, half of what he puts in on rehab. I thought that was an interesting thing too. He's like, yeah, I do the purchase. I know what the ARV is. I don't care. So if, I, so if it's a really good deal and doesn't need any work, I don't need to make that much. And if it's needs a shit ton of work, well, then I want to make sure I make enough, at least half of what I put in for the rehab, I want to get back out. So that was an interesting way of thinking about it. I don't know if I agree, but he's kind of tackling the same problem a different way. Bigger rehab, bigger problems, bigger profit. I don't know. Hopefully, I think – and it sounds like you guys track it pretty close all the time. So if something goes up, you know, oh, that went up. Bathrooms are now $200 more a bathroom, right? That's actually a great question. What, especially with all these tariffs, what have you guys seen? The price has it affected prices of anything going up? Has it affected anything? The materials I've seen lumber, especially. I mean, lumber prices now from a year and a half ago are ridiculous. I mean, 30, 40% higher for what I do in just the remodeling. Might only spend a thousand dollars on lumber in a house anyway, so it's nothing significant. For something like new construction, that, that hurts. Have a pretty yeah, decent impact on the bottom line. But I don't know. You guys see anything? I haven't really? seen anything yet. Okay, it's a question that pops up. People like to get all politically charged and go talk. But I was like, I, I wonder if that's really affecting anything at all. All right, we got next question from my good buddy Mark Tomes. I want to hear about Carson's transitioning to hiring workout. His struggles, if any. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like I threw an if any. <laughs> to find contractors and the pains of being able to do it yourself. If this applies to Tommy and Eric, I'd love to hear from you all as well. Seems to be a recurring theme for me. 
All right, Carson and everyone else wants to join and talk about your uh, struggles of doing the work yourself to doing none of the work or an attempt anyway. It's tough. There's positives and negatives to everything. Um, I think personally, the biggest roadblock is just having discipline and saying, even though I can, I'm not going to do this hands on because that's investing in the now to get something done versus finding the people that you can invest in for later to get it done for the rest of your life. Leverage, right? Leverage, yeah. exactly. So I think is finding people, it's always tough. It's always difficult. You're going to find a lot of shitty contractors, but it's all about just continuously finding new people and trying it and not just saying, screw it, I'll just go in and get it done myself. So that's the biggest challenge is more of a personal thing than it is actually going out and finding people. Because I, I treat contractors like wholesalers treat finding a house. It takes 100 calls to get 20 leads. 20 leads gets you one guy. So it's not how do I find one guy. It's how do I find 20 guys to get through the door. So I try to break it down like that mentally just to get a little bit more discipline. Or else I get burned out. Yeah. I haven't found this one guy, so screw it. I'm just going to go and tile the house right now. Mm-hmm. So it's not fun, though. Honestly. Yeah, for us to do work anymore is counterproductive because our skills are so much more valuable than that to find deals and like Carson said to weed out contractors I mean in an afternoon you know we can probably look at five guys and maybe one of them can do one job for us and that's better than us doing the job because what if the guy does 10 jobs for us so yeah I agree keep cycling people yeah I hire and fire them all the time uh, so for me, I've, other than the first rental, I've subbed out everything and hired out everything. Um, one thing that I wanted to do in this most recent flip was to hire a GC, which I have, but even that's a struggle. Um, because now I feel like I'm not in control, like things are behind or you're reaching out to people. And even I'm still, because I might have more connections or I might just because of some of the stuff that I've done, I have people that I know will do maybe a better job or get a better value than what he has. So I'm still kind of involved, but then I'm not involved. So it's kind of a dilemma there. So I'm trying to figure it out too. Cause I, as when Carson was first talking about the GC thing, I'm like, Oh man, well that, that, that's kind of where I'm at now. It's like, I almost just want to go back to hiring, subbing out everything, but I, I'm still the GC. Just because I feel like I have a little bit more control um, over the project. Well, that leads me to a great question. Open to all you guys. How do you hire, fire, and pay your contractors, workers, professionals, whatever? How do you guys – let's start with hire. How do, you, how do you hire and qualify them? Well, I mean, we always try to get – or I always try to get references from somebody. And it's pretty easy because lots of guys in the trades knows lots of guys that do other trades. So at least you're not getting somebody cold and then you got to talk to them a lot and they don't like it because we got, (laughs) we got questions to ask. And, you know, for sure with the three of us who've done the work, you know, when some, like Eric said, when some guy comes to you and says, you know, it's like $3,000 to paint the first floor and I don't do sheetrock, we already know that he's not our guy. You know, go back to Bloomfield Hills. So it sounds like a quote is the beginning of the relationship with you. You reach out for a quote, you look at it. If it looks like it's within your range, how else do you look at it? Well, I don't even do that. I tell them how much I pay. 
Mm. And that just cuts half of the guys off the chain. Okay. So you're just like, you're just like here's my work. 50 a foot for, to get um, two colors painted. Yeah. So it's like more oh, like a wholesale God. deal. Yeah. Who wants this? Right. We, yeah, I got a deal here for you. You can make. Bucks. Good. Don't come. Yeah. <laughs> okay. You know. I guess subcontractors and employees, people I'm trying to hire in house, a different approach for the employees. I always want to meet them, usually sit down for coffee, mostly be, and have a conversation because I want to make sure one, they're not going to rob the house, try to get at least that much of a feel. If I can have a 30 minute hour long conversation and they seem halfway decent of a person, then it's just get out of house. And then we can tell within a half a day if they can stay or go, just see how they work what they're capable of, what they're not capable of. Over time, I've learned just to pick up cues before anyone even touches a hammer, if they're going to be good or not. Most people want to talk and talk and talk, say how they can do everything. Guys like that, I usually just throw out from the beginning. Subcontractors, really it's getting a quote going from there. I like the idea of telling them the number or at least a range. That way you're not wasting everyone's time, potentially. Mm-hmm. If you're paying a dollar fifty for paint, they're at three. You're wasting your time, you're wasting their time. So, so, but that's something maybe I can implement going forward. But mostly it's get the quote from there, have a conversation with the subs, see if they seem like they know what they're doing, and then just let them go and let them fire themselves. Well, you mentioned red flags. One of them you just mentioned is if they talk forever about how they can do everything. Are there any other red flags that come to your head real quick when you're sitting down talking to them? When they talk to you. Um, (laughs) Well, body language tells me a lot. So I do like if they're having beer instead of coffee at at eleven o'clock in the morning for the meeting. I mean, again, it depends. If it's a worker, it's why are they looking to switch jobs? If they just keep bitching about their old job, old boss, old employees, they're going to do it to you. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it's, nothing's going to change with them. If they have, if they already, I mean, I've had guys where within 20 minutes are talking about time they've spent in jail. Mm. So a lot of times you can just shut up and let them talk themselves out of it. Dude, just, I love that. Just like on the house. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. What can you tell me about the house? Really open to the question. Then they tell you everything. Yeah. Yeah, for, 20 minutes. Yeah, when I was in jail. Ooh, shit, look at the time. <laughs> for and GCs, what? I try to figure out how they run their business and see, does that make sense to me if I was a GC running a business? Because if they're talking about, you know, if I can just get it from conversation, how many projects they have going on, and if they sound like they're spread way too thin, then that's a red flag. You know, if they're talking about how they need deposits, big deposits up front, then I question their money management. So I like to try to dissect people's businesses, especially for general contractor side. And if it doesn't make sense to me how it's set up, then I don't, and I'm not sure if someone can succeed like that, then I probably don't want to try and see if they can succeed on my own projects. Yeah. Go practice on somebody else's dollar. Right. Okay. What about if they're new? How do you guys take chances with new people? Do you guys ever take chances with new people or? Well, for me, like, so I haven't been doing this nowhere near as long as Carson and Tommy. A lot of like my first one was reaching out to like Tommy or other rehabbers to get referrals. Um, and then from that point, obviously you're getting a, a quote and you're meeting them, um, for the sub work. And I like to, I'm real big on energy and just, conversation and also your your personal life um and then also i look at if i 
call you and you don't answer or I text you, you don't answer or you say you're going to meet me there and you don't answer. I don't even hire you. I don't, I'm not even looking to hire you. Yeah, that's what I'll Jeff test, Lebeski and you people. said on the last podcast. Yeah. You're just not going to deal yeah. with no communication. Yeah, right? I'll, I'll test people and say, hey, are you going to be here at this? And I won't contact them. I'll show up. And if they don't show up, it just lets me know that they're probably going to do that on the job. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I do that with pretty much everyone. Yeah, that's like a first date, isn't it? Yeah, if you're I not going to bring your best to first date, how do you think the second and third are going to go? Yeah. yeah, they're not even going to shower. You know? And then if, <laughs> if they do show up, then we, like I say, I'm looking to build and get an idea of who they are as a person and then also qualify the work. And like I say, if it's something that fits, then we'll, we'll move forward with hiring. Um, I've only hired one GC. He was working. He had finished up a few other things on other projects. So I had already had a working relationship with him. Um, and something that actually Jesse Boyd, I was talking to Jesse Boyd the other day and we were talking, I was just telling him about the, the projects and he was just saying in his experience, you know, it's kind of like if it works, it, it just works from day one. If it doesn't work from day one, it's probably a good chance it's not going to work. And that's kind of how I've, I've tried to approach it now. Like if I'm having problems in the beginning, this is probably going to transcend the entire time of our relationship. If it just clicks and that's kind of how it worked with the GC, we just had a good working relationship. We communicated well. Um, he showed up, he did what he said he was going to do. So it kind of worked and it, like I say, it's still working now. It, um, just, just some of the issues I think with the hiring out, but if it works in the beginning, I think it'll work. If it if you have problems, just like a relationship, those red flags are there in the beginning. That's probably what's going to break you up. I like that more red flags. So if it doesn't go right from the get go, yeah. bail bail early. Is that what you guys do, Tommy Carson? No. Oh, yes, yes. Like Carson says, they get about a half a day. Yeah. And and here's the other thing I want to say to all you guys out there: don't fucking give anybody any deposits. No deposits. That was going to be the follow up question. How do you how do you and, guys? And this is pay how them? I deal with it. Is they got to trust me for one day. We make a deal. You got to trust me for one day. And I'll come out there at 4 o'clock on that day. And if you got some work done, I'll bring cash. And I'll do it for a couple, three days in a row. And the next thing you know, you got your deposit and the job's under. It's working. Or, like these guys said, if it's not working, you're out of here. And, you know, like these guys, I got a long list of people you can call. Probably on that job, I can go, hey, here's Bill the electrician. Hey, Bill, when's the last time I paid you? Last Friday, got my invoice in on Thursday, blah, 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 blah. We don't, we don't not pay people. Yeah. I love to pay contractors, actually. When yeah, it's their, a relationship. Yeah, when they Whenever you work. pay them and they're thankful, then they trust you that much more. Yep. They're going to work with you that much more. They're going to put you as a priority. Is that how you do it too, basically? Um, I pretty much don't give anyone money up front, especially if it's anything that's more labor intensive. Um, some subs at this point, if they've worked with me for years, if they want something up front, I'd be more than happy. But most of the good guys don't ask for anything up front. Yeah, they don't need it. They have the yeah. working capital to start a project, finish it, and then get paid. If it's a big build out, that can be a little different, I understand. But yeah, what if it's like roof or windows? So something that's just like. It's pretty decent, you know, cost beyond labor. Yeah, right? for my roofer is one of my best subs, and sometimes it takes him a month to give me a number after he's already done a job. Just oh wow! To, so he's so you he have a high level capital. of trust with that guy. Yo, 100%. Yeah, hundred um, percent. Windows, something like that. I would want to pay for the materials myself. They can measure. They can go put the order. Do a phone sale. It's a pain, but it's a one time 
buy on my part to reduce my risk by potentially 50% of the cost of the job. So, and then at that point, materials are all there. They're just floating labor. If someone can't float labor for a few days, you don't want to hire them in the first place. All right. So you guys will do materials and make them float labor. So they're only out for their labor. And in Tommy's case, only for a few days. Is that was that the same? Yeah. I mean, yeah. for something like, you know, for if a window guy comes in the day he finishes, I'll pay him. Or if he, you know, is going to email an invoice. As soon as I get that, I pay him. So it's usually it's done. He gets paid as soon as the job's done or a few days after. Eric. So now I don't um, put down deposits. Um, in the beginning, yeah, I was. Um, I think part of it with at least for me, I, I agree with what Tommy says. Like if you don't trust me that I'm going to pay you, we probably don't need to work together. Um, but me just getting in. I probably because of my posture and not doing it, I would put the deposit down and it worked out for the majority. What really what burned me was putting down a deposit for a guy. He didn't do any work. So that changed it. Yeah. Um, now, yeah, especially if it's majority labor, I almost question you asking for a deposit. Like, why? What do you need a deposit for? Like you're painting. I mean, other than the material and I can buy the paint. It's it's all labor at that point for the most part. So I kind of if if they're looking for a deposit, I kind of question if it's something that is like I say strictly labor extensive. So now I don't. When I was doing it, I always put down a deposit. I got fucked a lot though. <laughs> so in my case, I was kind of backed in a corner. I can't do any of the work, and I won't say I'm incapable of managing a bunch of contractors, but I will say it does not play into my strengths. So I was kind of left with uh, one thing. How I did it, though, was I would put down 30% and then you would have to do 40% of the work. And then I would give you an additional 30% and you would have to finish like the whole project and I would hold the last 10% until you signed a release, but I got fucked a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so now I made enough money to cover it up. So my case is definitely more grease than I, I didn't have all the skill as you guys. And I, knowing what I know now, I don't know if I would do it, but I don't want to sit here and pretend like I did it, did some different way. Like, yeah. And then I also like Carson said, if there is a guy that I have a relationship with and I know, or I feel that, you know, he hasn't, he's done what he said he's going to do. And he does ask, I will sometimes put down that deposit for that guy. But yeah, a new person or someone I haven't had a relationship with, or one of those contractors that like to say, I don't feel that it's necessary. No, I don't do it anymore. How do you fire these guys? And then with potentially joy. any claims too. <laughs> with joy. Yeah, Get we, the fuck off my <laughs> job site. Where's a hammer? <laughs> don't take my fucking tools with you. Yeah. yeah. Just like that, you're fired. Get the fuck out. Um, most of the guys fire themselves. I was just gonna say that. So I've never had to self. fire anyone. They, the last they guy fire themselves. fired. Oh, deed. So nice. The wow. ambulance took him off. That he was an easy himself. one. He wow. fired himself. Yeah. Um, subcontractors, I don't usually fire. I let them finish out the job, and then they'll never hear from me. I'll pay them, but they'll they'll get the message. Yeah. Because they know I have X number of more jobs lined up that I've already told them about. And when they finish the job and get paid and don't get called, they should know why. Tommy? Handful of cash. Get the fuck off. Here's your money. Get the fuck off my job. Well, what about the rest of the Get off my job. 
Yeah, I've never had to actually fire someone. It's either they fire themselves or, like Carson, I don't call you again. Got it. Well, I hope. Do you guys sign contracts? You guys? Yes, I always sign contracts. So, all right. I do not. It's Carson. I do, I, I do now. All right. Last time I did, I, you know, the guy was two months late. It said 50 bucks a day. When they got fired off the job, I tallied it up. Gee, no, you don't get any more money. Oof. I used to do the same thing. It never worked, but I always tried to, like, I'll pay you. Was it something like, I'll pay you 100 bucks for every day you finish early. And every day you're late, I charge you 50 bucks. Can anybody mm-hmm. guess how many fucking early projects Zero. I got? I even tried raising that to, it was like 150 a day at one point. Like, I just couldn't incentivize them, but I attempted nope. to do that. And I, <laughs> you can I did. Yeah. All right. So we got some contracts and no contracts. So see, this is why we have a variety of people here. You get to hear it right here. All right. Next question. Scott Krieger. Um, do you, he says rehab finishes between cities, but I think he's asking, is there a difference in rehab finishes between cities? I would might even say price points. I'm going to throw in Scott price points, cities and Obviously, price points are type of houses. Do you guys have different finishes for different? Uh, I've only done Detroit, but I feel like my Detroit rehabs could probably be in um, different cities. I would say, yeah. yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, most of my flipping is 120 to 170 thousand dollar range on the ARVs. I'm working one now in Clawson, ARV of 240. So instead of the hundred dollar lows. Kitchen faucet, you know, I'll spend 150, 200 and get something a little bit nicer. So I'm trying to make the finishes, you know, sinking another 20 to $100 per light fixture, per faucet, just to make it a little bit more higher end. Actually, great question. Let's talk about, I'm just going to expand on this. What are your guys' flip finishes? Because it sounds like for the most part, except for our outlier here, Tommy, who has as low as 55, as high as 350, right? But you guys are kind of working between like a 110, 150 range flip, Detroit, Hazel Park, Madison Heights, Oak Park. What are your guys' rehab finishes? What does that look like to somebody who might want to do the same thing? If you go on my Facebook page and you look at one house, you've seen all my finishes <laughs> for every single house. So it's completely standardized completely on your standardized. side. All right, walk me through it. What is it? Gray paint, white cabinet, same grayish countertop, same tile, same backsplashes. Granite, though? Granite, yep. Yeah. Always granite. Where do you get your cabinets? I go uh, through a supplier direct okay. out of Adrian. All right. Would you say it's better, worse, or on par than like Home Depot? Or where oh, it's you put 100 it? times better for the same price. Yeah. Okay. I don't. I stick away from the cheapest of anything. And I've been trying to migrate more towards not just going middle of the road, but a little bit higher end. For most things, probably over building in terms of quality of the materials, but I think I get it out on the sale price. It You're, allows me to push the comps. Always, right? I've done that with Tommy a lot too. Same with Eric. But what, what finishes do you put in, sir? I know you're meticulous in this. Well, shit. you know, if if it's above 140, then it it, it gets insane finishes, and I'm with. Um, Carson, I've been buying my cabinets from somebody else too. Probably the same place, but I got somebody in between us. And the cabinets are way nicer than, well, they're not, I, they're as nice as anything at Home Depot, but they're way cheaper than the super expensive ones at Depot. Granite, a must. You just go get a granite guy. But I'll tell you the trick about the, about the fixtures. 
The only thing anybody ever knows about is the fixtures. Everybody's been to Home Depot. Everybody knows what the $200 kitchen faucet looks like at Home Depot. Here's the trick. If you go look at a catalog for Moen, Delta, Price Fisters, Kohler, they got about 25 different lines, and they all cost the same amount of money. So the $200 faucet, the three that they got at Lowe's, the three that they got at Depot, the three that they got at Menards, well, there's 12 more in the book. You order them from e-faucets up front, same price or cheaper. No one's ever seen it. So if you buy the 150 that no one's ever seen, they think it's more expensive. Psychology uh. 101. And the same thing with light fixtures. Here's the biggest thing. Everybody's had to put a light fixture in their house. Everybody's tried to DIY. So when you buy those Home Depot light fixtures, everybody knows they cost $11.48. <laughs> well, I go to another store where they cost sometimes $47. And as Jeremy can say, people walk into my houses and they say stuff like, wow, that's a super nice light fixture. Wow, I've never seen a door handle like that. Yeah, you yeah, did put in on Stahalen, those door handles were fucking awesome. I can I can one hundred percent attest to like I never when you were telling me like how nice can a door handle be, right? I know you didn't pay that much. They more were hundred and ten dollars each. They I were, guess they were. They were fucking nice. And we set a record yeah. with, with that one. All right, so you kinda go with uh similar quality but throw them off the scent they can't show up in price compare because it's not something they're used right, to seeing they've never seen it and yeah. you know if you if you can get your action together which i can hardly ever if you know what you need at the front of a project you can order that stuff online for some times the same price and you've never seen it before and psychology will always think that it's more money All right, and we're talking ac to right like like so people listening <clears throat> Also, you guys will sometimes fix some um, like uh, functional obsolescence, like maybe open up a kitchen too, right? Oh yeah, we're always moving. We're always yeah. moving walls. Yeah, so sometimes yeah. it's not just about the rehab. You're also fixing a problem that you inherited from sixty or seventy or eighty years ago when shit like that used to make sense for whatever reason, like a kitchen and in a box. And we're all you know? probably finishing some part of the basements again. Yeah, basements always spraying ceilings black, walls white. The floor may or may not be carpet, depending on how nice it is. Yeah. Tile, brother, tile. Yeah. Just Tommy get rid of that tile. carpet shit. Yeah. <laughs> Eric? Um, so for me, I don't I have a standard as far as the paint, like gray, white trim. Um, same with the basement, white walls, black ceilings, typically gray for or try to tile it. Um, but for like the kitchens, I don't I'm looking to change it up each time. I don't really want my rehabs to look Especially mainly because I know, like Tommy had mentioned earlier, you have to make it. It's the it's so many people that are flipping now. You have to stand out, especially in Detroit. Um, so I don't want like the just. Tip, I've never done a white shaker. Um, I don't want to just the typical. I'll do granite. Congratulations, brother. <laughs> I've had to do white shaker. <laughs> um, I've done a lot, and not that I wouldn't. It's just that I want to set it apart from my competition. Um, so yeah, I'm looking in the kitchen, looking to do different things. Like on the last one, I did a pearl glaze cabinet instead of the white shaker with the, um, with the, the accent, um, bronze handles. Um, you know what the funny thing about that was each one of those things taken individually looked terrible, mm -hmm. but when you put them all together, it looked fucking great. Yeah. I couldn't I, even believe it. Yeah. I honestly, when I first saw it, I didn't like it, but after everything came together, it looked I, fantastic. Yeah, it looked good. Yeah. Um, so yeah, granite 
countertops, backsplash, um, uh, tile flooring in the kitchen, or I'll go like a, a vinyl. Um, and the last one I, I used some tile. It was poor ceramic, but it looked marble. So it was like a real shiny finish. Um, what else? Uh, I got this from Tommy where if you have that extra space, um, on the main floor in the Detroit house to add that half bathroom. Yeah. Um, try to get the ensuite bathroom if there's room for that in the master and the colonials. Try to do that. And then now I just look f- to add sizzle type of features. So I'm looking if, um, like in the, the house I'm doing now, I wanted to add laundry on the main level to just kind of set it apart from other, uh, rehabs. But yeah, for me, I have a standard like just, Material gray, granite, nice cabinets, nice flooring, gray paint, white trims, basements. But I'm always looking to do something different as far as the design. So cut corners on a rehab or get a better deal on the purchase price. And that's, yeah, I was just going to say that's the, I'm going in making my offer based on like, I'm not doing a cheap rehab. Yeah. I think a lot of people back into it like, well, I could do this if I shortcut at the rehab, right? And I had some of those clients, if they're listening, it's nothing personal, but it worked for some time until it didn't work. And then the market got flooded. And as Eric pointed out, um, there's not a lot of high quality rehabs. It's always hard to do under all circumstances, but it's pretty easy to get a half-ass rehab on the market. And we noticed on yours on Grayton too, it took months after, even after yours sold for the one night right next door to yep. you. And he to dropped actually the price sell. like six, seven times. Yep. And it was right next door. You fucked up. So don't skimp on your rehab budget. Get a better purchase price so you can do the right thing. Miss, so you can. Miss some of them. Yeah. Otherwise so, you're lying to yeah. yourself about your ARV, right? Is that really your ARV when you start subtracting things from it? No, your ARV is going to change. So. All right. I think that covered that one. Next question. Jason Medley. What homes do you stay away from? Not so much areas, but the rehabs themselves. I think what he's talking about, are there any rehab repairs you avoid or you don't want to do, or maybe you have like an extra what cost you do? Is there anything that makes you run for the hills? Nothing has made me run. I mean, I just account for it in, the, in my offer. I try to stay away from fire jobs because they're actually way more complicated than you think. I mean, you start to make – that's kind of like, you know, we're all accomplished rehabbers, but we're not – I don't want to speak for everybody, but, you know, I've done a couple firehouses and, like, how hard can it be? I mean, you know, you got to replace some wood. you got to put some extra kills on it, but it always seems like – there's just a wild card there. And then when I talk to the guys that do fire jobs and they tell me about the price per square foot, I'm about to have a heart attack. And but mm. that's why it's so high, because there's always crazy stuff you gotta do. It's fire damage. To me it's all about working in the numbers. If it's gonna be a pain rehab, if it's foundation work, anything like that, then I just need to make an extra ten K to account for it. Hassle factor. Yeah, there's a yeah. hassle fee. I mean I've right. rebuilt crawl spaces. Foundation work in basements, sewer digs, stuff like that, dormers. As long as, I mean, the bigger the rehab, if it's my normal rehab's 30, if I have to spend 80 on the rehab, as long as I make an extra 10, 20, 30K to account for the hassle, it's all about the numbers in the end. 
I did do a couple fire jobs. I agree with Tommy. There's always seems to be, that's kind of how I came out with my hassle factor, right? Cause it's not just that, but I did another big ass rehab with like water hole in the roof, all that. And you think you count for everything and it's just fucking impossible. There's always something that comes up. So I, I like the idea of like a hassle factor. So, all right. Hopefully that answered your question. Jason. So it sounds like a little bit of a mixed bag there. It sounds like know what you're doing though. And if you don't, don't do it. Yeah. Right. Like True. they're, yeah. they're attempting to eliminate risk. And if they take a risk, they go in and it's, it doesn't always work out. So I would say, you know, if you're not comfortable doing it, shit, don't do it. Yeah. yeah. Go do something else. I told Eric forever, wait for the right rehab. Yeah. You know? That's, that's what I was just saying. You know, yeah. probably pass on some of those. Yeah. If you can't get, the, don't just, Oh, I like this house. I want to flip it. I want to show people that I can make some money and go in and make that offer based on that, not accounting for the true rehab. Like I know I don't get a lot because my offer is so low because I'm accounting for the rehab that I know is it's going to take to get it done. Yeah. All right. Next question. No job is better than a bad job. That's true. (laughs) People, I, People feel under the gun sometimes to do a rehab, especially people when they're just starting. Like, I've been throwing us, I got to do something. They feel an urge to do something, even if it's bad, it's moving forward. And that's not the case because you can actually make a mistake that knocks you out of the game. Yeah. And then it might take you a couple of years to get back in. That, that happened to me. And that was not good to my career. And I'm, I'm not the only one. I think it happens to a lot of people. Yeah. Plus flipping, it takes so much construction knowledge, which most people don't have. I didn't have when I started out. So it was do the simple, quick, easy rehabs Mm -hmm. and then bought a crappy house, had to rebuild the crawl, didn't plan on it. But then I learned, okay, rebuilding the crawl is not that difficult and not that scary anymore. Now give me the homes with messed up crawls. So kind of baby step into it would be my recommendation. Like that lemons to lemonade too kind of thing. All right. Next question, Derek. I always get his last name wrong. I'm sorry, Derek. I'm not going to try. He's a great inspector. I highly recommend him. What What do you think is the difference for you or the pros and cons to having a full-time crew versus subbing workout? And just so you know, Derek is actually – he's a home inspector. He's attempting to start and do his own crew and get into investing himself. So he's – General contractor, he's hiring his workout, he's doing home inspections, and he's going to be doing his own stuff too, just so you know. I think kind of how we started this conversation with finding guys, what type of guys, in-house, sub-out, GCs, there's no right answer, there's no wrong answer. Everything is going to have its positives and negatives. Everything sucks at the end of the day to manage. So every do everything because you're going to try to build in-house crew, guys are going to fall off. At that point, you're going to need subs. There's going to be a time where you're so busy, you just need a good GC. So I think it's about building the database of anyone and everyone. And then if you find someone that's good, if it's a sub, you'll figure out how to use them. If it's a GC, you'll figure out how to use them. If it's an employee, you'll bring them in and make sure that he stays busy. So I don't think there's a right answer. It's just anyone and everyone that's good, figure out how to use them. I like that build a database, kind of like it's a whole bunch of wholesale deals sitting in there, right? Or a bunch of like you just... It's bigger your database, the more likely you are to solve your problem, Tommy. Well, yeah, I mean, you got to have your stable of guys and people that you're going to go to. And I mean, I go back and forth about building a construction company. You know, certainly Carson and I have had this, and I'm sure Eric thinks about it sometimes, but he might be smarter than us, and he's not going to do it. <laughs> but, you know, if you're going to scale, you're going to run out of people. 
And the only way to really keep people is to, I, I think the only way that I see, and I talk to a lot of my friends, some guys that have really big companies, and if you're going to scale big and go hard for long, you got to have your own company. So you can control, the, mostly like Eric said, he feels out of control with the GC. I felt the same way. Like I said, the guy, I, did, I hired a JC and a GC and I, and I had a contract. And in the end, you know, when he got cut loose, he didn't get any more money because he was two months over budget on a three-week job. Yeah. And so I'm back and forth about it. But I think I think Carson's right. You you're, you know you gotta know as many people as you can and find out. And you know when you're you use your same subs over and over. I mean we got two plumbers and one electrician, and that guy gets those three guys get all my work. I don't even think to call anybody else. Well, what work do you guys have your full time guys do? Is it like a range of work or or how did what, like what did you want? A better question. I'm gonna expand on it, Derek. Hopefully this this helps out. When you went to hire your first full couple of full-time guys, what work did you want them to be able to do at a level you'd be satisfied with? The role that I wanted to fill was general carpenters. So rough framing, finished carpentry, trim, doors, cabinets, tile would be a plus, light plumbing, light electrical, light drywall. Those are kind of the the main points that have to be hit. Anything more that they can do is a plus. I have one guy that's really good at windows, can bend aluminum, that's a plus. Um, one guy really likes doing more hardcore electrical. But as long as they can hit the general basic things, then I keep them busy for the rest of their life. Anything more specific they can do, great. But then the guys that I have, one's better at the rough framing than the other, so then he gets all of that work. So you kind of figure out what they're better at and not as good at and then move the pieces around that way. That's interesting. Tommy? Mostly my guys are really good about cleaning up after contractors because the hard trades are easy to find. The plumbers, electricians, the HVAC guys, because those guys need to be more skilled, and their jobs are so short. You know, like a guy can rewire a house with a, with a helper in two or three days at the most, and he's in and out. Whereas, you know, when it comes to the guys that are going to paint, do sheetrock, move the walls, you know, do the carpentry, then when it all gets painted, put the cabinets in, you know, and work their way out. They're there for so much longer of a time that those seem to be the people that just can't hang with it. And and so... So it sounds like Swiss Army knife skills, and if it's a specialized thing, that's a bonus, but you probably hire out the specialized thing and you want your in-house guys to be able to do about 80% of the work you would normally yeah. do on a house. Because right? subbing it out, so many things fall through the cracks. Then, well, who does all the little stuff? Ah. It's like almost you need a, a generalized carpenter or handyman that can come in and do all the little punch list things and all the things that just... So no finishing stuff. work too, right? Especially that last, finishing work. Okay. Yeah. All right. I think that was... Eric, do you have anything to add? No, on I mean because I don't. I haven't hired anyone full time, so I'm. That was a question I wanted to know as well because it's something that I think about. Just mainly that that general contractor that can just like just kind of do everything and the skilled stuff. If he can do it, that's a plus to just keep him around and yeah. not have to rely on finding these people because those people do get replaced the most. Like you say, my plumber, I. I mean, as spoiled as he is, I mean, he's, I don't have to worry about any, like, if he's going to be there, if he says he's going to be there, he's there. He does the work right. He comes back to, to do anything that wasn't right the first time. Like, 
those are the, the electrician is good. It's the, the general people that you're constantly looking for better or someone that's just going to continue to do the job. So, Derek, it sounds like if you're going to hire someone, get yourself a Swiss Army knife and someone who can do the finishing work at the end and tie up the loose ends. It sounds like that's pretty much what they use them for. Hopefully, that answers your question. Next one for Mr. Jeff Helm. How to make sure a contractor has enough information to provide you with a firm quote, not just an estimate that allows them to come back later for additional costs. So that So the question is, how do you handle the guy? Well, I missed that, or it doesn't cover that, or I didn't know I was putting in shoe molding, or coming back and asking for for more than what you originally had set aside. I think putting the legwork up front, trying to, I think it comes down to, for me, being able to think about all aspects of the job that I want them to do and lay it out from the beginning. A lot of times there's an issue where I don't think or see of some see something and then they don't do it. And at the end, well, how can I hold them accountable to something I didn't foresee? So being able to foresee things is a big factor. And then I personally don't like managing people. I'm not very confrontational. So then if they don't do something that I wanted them to do, but if it wasn't discussed, sometimes I have a hard time bringing it up and having them do it. But if I tried to overcome that by, well, if I can lay everything out, and usually it's create a list, a bullet point list, type it out, write it out, give it to them. Then at the end, instead of saying, hey, why don't you do this thing that wasn't really discussed and we weren't sure if you really are going to do it or not, it's why don't you do a bullet point three when it was clearly written on here and you saw it at the beginning when you're giving the quote. So it helps me hold people accountable. All right. Yeah, that's that's why I do the scope of work. So, and I try to make it as detailed as possible. Like, remove mirror from bedroom, north wall, like that type of detail. Because you'll do these rehabs. And I know for me, I'll look at things and like, that was just common sense to just do. Um, and maybe because it wasn't common sense for them or they're just in the, the realm of it wasn't on my job to do list. So I didn't do it. Yeah. Not my job. Yeah. It's not my job. So I try to be as um, detailed and specific as possible on a scope of work. And I'm giving that to the person and they're signing off on it. That's what the contract is for. So you can't come to me and say, I can, I can come to you at least and say, this was a part of it. You signed off on it. You were supposed to do this. I have had those instances too, where I missed something. And like Carson is like, I can't fault them because I didn't put it into the scope of work. Um, so I just got to kind of have to bite the bullet on that one. Checklist, 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 checklist. And it's really not that hard. I mean, I'm guilty of not doing it because, you know, I've been doing it a long time. So the common sense thing, you know, you tore the shoe molding out. Of course, you're putting the shoe molding back. Yeah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's not on my list. Right. So Fuck. It's easy to get. I mean, you know, the, fa- the thing that will make you go the fastest in this business, if you go on the Internet and you download some checklists and you look at it and you use those to build your scope of works so that – both, like everybody said here, you know, it says shoe molding. When are you doing the shoe molding? Yeah. So, Jeff, to answer your question, it sounds like a lot of preparation up front and then writing it down. So, there, if it is your mistake and you missed it, it's clear that it was your mistake and you missed it. And if not, it's very clear what they should and shouldn't have done. All right. Next question, Rob. How do you say that last name? K N I O L A. Sorry, Rob. 
<laughs> How are you dealing? You don't have to answer these questions, but I am going to ask them. How are you dealing with work, uh, workman's comp liability insurance? If you're hiring people that are insured and if you get your own insurance and have them work under your policy, also if you 1099 or W2 workers, I would also like to know if Carson works until 2 a.m. every day or just post pics of his work from <laughs> earlier. So well, how do you guys deal with workman's comp and liability? I got this great one-page sheet that I got from one of my local lawyers that says you will have million-dollar insurance, blah, 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 blah. And if you don't, you can't sue anybody. You can't hold anybody accountable. You're absolutely a subcontractor. You don't get this. You don't get that. You don't get this. And, and if anybody does drugs on the thing, you have to tell the, us immediately, and here's our phone numbers, and you sign here. And I said, has this worked? And he said, no one's tried to sue me yet, so I don't know. <laughs> but all i got to say, it's better than nothing. That's true. Better than nothing. Carson? Better than nothing. Um, I won't plead the fifth, but it's a lot, it's a lot cheaper for me to 1099 than it is a W-2. There's risk and liability in that. Something I'm willing to take. Hopefully you're working with people that are halfway decent enough. So if there's ever an issue in terms of liability and any safety that you guys can work it out. So there's a hundred percent right way to do things, which I'll usually always cost more money. So kind of leave it at that. Take a little bit more risky approach, Eric. Yeah, I probably same. Um, I don't always do things the right way. Um, hasn't bit me yet. Um, for for a lot of my contracts, I do ask, do they have insurance? Ask to see it, have them sign off on something stating that they do have it, and if they don't, then they can't come at me about it. But I've also worked with other contractors where I haven't asked for anything, um, and I say it's worked out. So I, yeah, um, <laughs> I had a I had a guy OD. I wasn't at the house, but one of my full timers has been with me for a while was at the house and called and said, this guy passed out. Mm -hmm. I said, he didn't pass out. He OD'd. First reaction was, if he's going to die, drag him to the front. Yeah, die die (laughs) on the neighbor's lawn, not not in my house. Not in the house. (laughs) Well, what I did back in the day, since I didn't sub any work out and I can't do any work besides paint, and I wasn't going to anyway, it wasn't that good of a job of painting anyway, was I made sure they had a license and I made sure allegedly they had insurance and it was in the contract. Yeah. So that's where I put it. I also, um, I use Chris Mosier. So when back when I was flipping, he had a special rehab policy and he probably does things differently now. And if you have a lot, you might have general liability insurance, right? But I always made sure I had the correct property insurance for whatever stage the property was in. Meaning if I was rehabbing it, I wasn't being cute. And say, well, I'm going to save money by, well, no, I won't do that. It's not being rehabbed. It cost me way more, but then I had liability insurance. I had some extra protections. And so if something happened, I would be covered. Nothing ever did happen. So I had one house burned down and I got paid out on it and it wasn't a bad deal. So I never had any claims or anything bad happen. But that was how I dealt with it. Yeah, um, before I even close, I have I get insurance. On yeah, those. and I and I make sure you got don't lie to your. I mean, simplifiedinsuranceagency.com. dot com. That's, that's who I use. Yeah. You tell your insurance agent everything you're going to do 
to that property. You do not, because here's what you don't want to happen. You have a claim and then you go back and all it turns out you're not insured for that claim or you didn't do it the right way. Or there's some reporting standard where you had to present photos or something. If you're going to try and cover that risk, actually have an honest conversation yeah. with who you're, who's insuring your property and then make sure you're, you're covered. And one thing I think I have a bad habit of not doing it, which is something I need to, to change going forward is up front when you're starting to work with someone new to get their 1099 information oh, yeah. from the get go. Up front, yes. Themselves, yes. Because there's been guys that I've been working with for years who have never 1099 at the end of the year. And I know if I go and ask them right now for their information, they're going to tell me just to go screw myself, yeah. which yep. it's hard to blame them. So if you just do it up front, get it out of the way, you know, if they give it to you, then you have it for the rest of your life. So, because if, if, you know, if, if I get audited and I can't provide that, I get bit on their taxes. Yeah. Uncle Sam's going to reach his hand yeah. back into your pot for a little bit more. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I like that. Okay. Yeah. That's good too. Yeah. I've, I've got learned a, that. Got, if you want your first check. You got to fill this out. Yeah. I've never had a W-2 employee, so I've never paid anybody W-2. I've always paid them contractors, and they've always had other jobs. Even right now, Kelly, my transaction coordinator, she's also a real estate agent who does 10 to 15 deals a year. So she has other outside work, so I can still 1099 or instead of doing W-2. Just realize that if you're doing 1099 and it should be W2, you never know. It can come come back and bite you in the butt. Yeah. Play play the game smart. I like that. Get to 1099 before you pay them. Yeah. I think that's the real winner right there of that whole thing. Before you stroke that check and give it to them, where's your 1099? And it prevents an awkward uncomfortable conversation where if you don't some for me if I don't want to if I want to avoid a conversation, I just don't have it. So I try to create the systems on the front end to avoid it from the beginning. There you go. 1099 is part of it. Yeah. yeah. Should be. Not always. All right. So hope that answers your question, Rob. Uh, we're a bunch of anarchists and fuck the government. All right. <laughs> Next question from Mr. Tom Otterman. I'm just kidding, government. We love you. Uh, we don't. Um, Thanks for building my business. <laughs> yeah. We appreciate it. You didn't do that. Uh, how they establish, how they handle establishing the scope of work, the quality of work, expectations on timing other upfront expectation setting do they have written documents they use every time or is it pen on the contract i guess i kind of answered this trade um i asked this question before trade or scale the job what are the experiences with having contractors sign contracts up front does it help keep things on track does it help them avoid troublesome contractors or does it drive away the decent ones in their experience so i kind of asked this a little bit before but I think he said the answer to the question many times up front. Up front. Up front. Yes. The answer is all this stuff up front. So slow down. Do it all up front. Um, are there, besides timing and quality work, do you guys have other expectations? Like, do you care if they're smoking weed in the house? Or yes. Tommy's like, yes. I, I like for them to keep. The smoke the weed outside, me too. Or yeah. smoke it with me now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, no, to keep, to keep the uh, site somewhat clean. I, I okay. don't like to come in and it's just, it just doesn't look like, um, it, it just looks trash. So that's something that I've started implementing into my contracts is that you'll have to keep, keep the site clean. All right. Plus, you get a return because if it's a dirty site, you have materials laying around, a lot higher likelihood that stuff gets damaged, yep. door gets dinged. Yep. If you're not pulling permits and the outside looks like it's a work zone, yep. city comes and tags the house, 
you know, it's shitty for the neighborhood to have a construction zone going on. Yeah. So curious to the neighbors as yep. well. Damn fucking clean, rehabbers without up. their permits. And, and yeah, and the biggest thing is materials W2 get thrown away. Yeah. yeah. All the trims all the time. All right, so you have a cleanliness expectation. Keep yeah. this not so trash so we know what's going on. Okay, any other expectations? Because I know we talked about it a lot before, but is that about mm-hmm. it? I think that when I first started out, I assumed that people would do what they say they were going to do, which was pretty uh, pretty young <laughs> no, and naive at the time. So I have the luxury of I'm usually going to be on the job site half the time working right alongside them doing something else, so it's easy for me to – main watch and maintain quality so that's not an issue but i'm sure it's a lot harder doing it from afar mm-hmm. I don't so know check in often afar. or pay somebody to check in often on yeah. the progress how yeah. often do you think like every other day every third day every Depends day on the guys and what they're doing yeah. i mean if it's someone that's you've used in the past trusted verified you shouldn't ever have to go but if it's someone that you know i have one electrician who's i have to be there and babysit him or else he's going to miss things he's going to cut quarters Shouldn't be using guys like that, but probably, it all just depends. Probably cheap. Yeah. <laughs> but my time is also not yeah, cheap. Yeah, that's for the, sure. That's for sure. Well, I know also there's labor, qualified labor shortages too, because we're trying to set out like work. I always work on this good, better, best system where I'm always shooting for the best, but good is good enough, right? With labor and everything the way it is, sometimes good is as good as you can get. And it could be hard to get the best. So. Yeah, but. I had this conversation with someone recently where there's always, for the most part, there should always be someone better out there for probably just the same price, if not just a little bit more expensive. So if like this electrician, I was venting to him about him, that my friend about the electrician and he said, you know, just use them when you can, but always be disciplined enough to continue to find that next electrician. And eventually you're going to find someone that is that does just as good, if not a better job for about the same price, or if not a little bit of a premium that I would be happy to pay mm-hmm. to not go. babysit. Yeah, that's a good point. Yep. So being All disciplined right. to continuing to find good people. And you guys don't, week. you ever have a problem having contractors sign a contract up front or is that like red flag? Fuck off. No, you're gone. I've never had, <clears throat> I've never had someone sign a contract before. Carson's not far. He, he doesn't know. Tommy, no, I only do it with GCs and yeah, you know, I'm pretty much done with yeah. GCs. Okay. So not that often. All right. I did Tom and it didn't do me any good, but I did it. Well, I think it did me good, but I still had him rip me off. I still had him not do the scope. It's not going to, if someone's going to rip you off, they're going to rip you off. Yeah. But if someone's not going to sign a contract up front, well then why do they not want to sign the contract? Yeah. It's I didn't a good have any, any problem with the contract. Sometimes they didn't like when I was trying to penalize them $50 a day. If I'm late, you tell me you're going to be late. All right. Uh, oh, so I will say this. A trick I would always do is like, well, how long do you think you need to do yeah. to do the whole thing? 30 days. All right. There's no way it could be less than 30 days. No. All right. We're going to say six weeks. Does that seem fair? I'd always throw in more time. Oh yeah, that's fair. So, so All right. Not done. If if you're early, hundred bucks. If you're late, fifty bucks. Is it? Because then what are they going to say then? Well, I need eight weeks. You just fucking told me four weeks, and I gave you six weeks, mm-hmm. but you need eight weeks. That was so. I mean, I still didn't get them done as quickly as I. But that's what I did. Whether it worked or not, I don't. I don't really know. That's a little bit harder to say. I think it worked sometimes. I don't know. I tried to set the expectation anyway. It was an attempt. All right. Next question. Mr. Jeff Rabinowitz. 
how are they funding their deals? A self-funding, bank financing, credit lines, joint ventures, private funding, any other methods or a combination of those methods? How are you guys funding your deals? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have money to lend or invest, my number is 504-975-2300. I like that you're the first person to do that. I was wondering how long that was going to take with this question. I knew it wouldn't take long. <laughs> I'm mixing. Um Majority private, and then some of my money. I would always prefer to use someone else's money, though. I've changed over the years. Um, I've tried to, I always, for the most part, I always want to work with as little people as possible. Um, higher risk, more people. That way, I only answer to myself for everyone's sake sometimes. <laughs> but I'd say, I don't know, out of what I have out there, maybe 50% is my cash, 50% is private money. All the private money that I have, it's all debt. I don't take on equity partners at this point unless that person can provide a value add to get the job done because I'm so hands-on that if I'm going to be working on a house, I need to take it all Mm -hmm. or else it's not worth my time. I get that. Um, But yeah, and then the debt partners I have, it's really just two people and they trust me more than anything else. So if I need the money, I make the call and then it's pretty much done. They don't look at the deals anymore. So I've... Try to narrow down the lending network to people that make my life as easy as possible. Well, actually, actually, let me open up the question. What are the different ways you guys have funded deals? Be specific, like uh, retirement accounts. I think that's what Jeff's trying to get at. All the do you have you guys use bank financing at all, or like quote unquote hard money lender? I have. Yes, bank financing, IRAs. I've gotten money from everywhere and anywhere. And that number is 504-975-2300. Call Tommy if you've got money. But like Carson says, if you want equity, you better bring something because the cash is just the cash. Yeah. Cash is – the opportunity cost of cash is usually 10%. So the opportunity cost for equity, you know, it's it's only 10% if I can replace it with cash debt debt financing. Well, you guys also have a track record too, so – when you start, a lot of people have to start with equity splits. Yeah. But once you're proven, a lot of times those equity – because you know, people don't think of it this way, but there's more money than there are deals. It doesn't seem like it. I know it does not seem like it, but it's not like there's a real pile of gold somewhere and it's real money. They just fucking print the shit all the time, <laughs> all the time, all across the world. So there's always more money. Then there are things to invest it in that will actually get you a return. It's just when you're starting, nobody fucking trusts you. You're high risk. So they want to make sure that it's kind of like a startup venture thing, right? You're like, okay, some of these are not going to work. I need to make enough on the ones that do work to cover my losses on the ones that um, don't work. So, well, I can tell you what I've used too. I've used self-directed Roth IRAs, regular self-directed IRAs. I did recently did my first, I won't say who, but you probably all know my first 401k, self-directed 401k. I can't remember if that was Roth or not. Um, when Gene and I got started, we pulled out a lot of credit cards because that's back in the day. We can just say, hey, we'll deposit this $40,000 credit card. Would you like all that money deposited into your account? It's 0% interest. We'll do that for you. I was like, fuck yeah, I want that. <laughs> I'm buying another Detroit house, baby. Yeah. So, um, I've used regular 401ks too. That's a real pain in the ass. Uh, I don't think I would do that again. Other people have used um, 
401ks, uh, also just cash. Uh, I don't use banks anymore or hard money lenders. I don't need to. I have, I have a policy. If I'm going to pay a ridiculous amount of money, why wouldn't it be to my like friends and family, right? I have a keep it in the family policy and I have good relationships with multiple lenders. And I would rather quote unquote overpay my friend than uh, give another dime to a fucking bank. That's where I'm at. I'm going to get over it someday, but I'm still there. Fuck you banks. I hate your guts. So, but I used to use hard money lenders and I used to use banks. I was up to the crash. So, uh, I've also done some sub two deals too, where I've taken over payments. I've never bought on a land contract though, but I've taken over payments a couple times. I've taken over payments on. We did a weird one with you. That one closed, which, but both of them, one's now a rental. One was a rental for years and then sold. So not for the flipping. It would work well for flipping. They can essentially sell or finance, take over the payment, flip it, not put much cash out, kick out the loan at the end. At least if it doesn't need a huge rehab, right? Sometimes yeah. if it needs like more in rehab that doesn't purchase price, trying to get somebody to put up a second position on the rehab, or you got to fund it yourself, but that would work too, right? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, Denise Moore, blacklisted funders to avoid and why? And I'm going to elaborate on this question because I think I know what she's getting at. People that you, people or businesses that you wouldn't use to fund your deals anymore. Obviously, I don't think she's probably asking for specific names, but I would say avoid <laughs> that unless you have a really good case for why you wouldn't avoid it. But let, let me, let me open it up too. Cause I've done this. Um, borrowed money from the wrong people too. So I'll leave this to everybody. Well, I've probably been around the longest because these guys are like 15. And <laughs> so, yeah, I borrowed money from the wrong guys a few times. And the challenge you have is, you know, they're just going to be on you every minute. And if, you, if you're doing construction and you and yours draws, you're going to have to fight for the cash. And, you know, you always want a little bit more than's done, and they always want to give you a lot less. And and it takes them a while sometimes to learn that if they starve the project, they're screwed. Because especially with me, I just like here's the keys. Call me when you want the job done. But you know, I told you I didn't have any money, or the money I have, I already put in, and that's it. So yeah, like what gets you blacklisted as a lender if you're borrowing money for for flipping? That's actually maybe a better question. Let's just reframe it, like. It depends on the opportunity cost. So if I'm doing my first flip and I found someone to lend to me, then I'll probably do anything and everything I have to do to keep that person happy or take the BS that they bring because what other options out there? I think people that have been doing it for a long time and built up the network, the opportunity cost of the cash out there has lowered because you have other places you can get money from. So you can demand better, better rates. You know, like we were saying, you don't have to give equity away at that point potentially. So I think it's what opportunities are out there and how much you have to bend over backwards for people, which is why I try to work with as few people as possible with partnerships because it's less energy on my part and it's less risk. Uh, well, I was lucky. My very first rehab, um, my private lender, he's, it's very easy to work with him. Um, I start the rehab, send pictures, he sends money. Um, I think a lot of that is based off of our relationship. He trusts me. 
Um, so it's not really much. It's not like he's walking the project every week or he's asking why am I requesting money. So um, the relationship is is easy in that aspect. Um, and then even some of the other ones, I've never I don't have anyone that's blacklisted. Um, I do have people that, OK, I look at a project this I would be more comfortable doing this project with this person versus this person just because of how they do business um, and the type of project it is. I, it might be something where I know the project is going to be difficult. I'd much rather do this with someone who's going to make my job easier versus, okay, I just need um, the money and it's going to be an easy project. I can use this guy. So it, that's really how I look at it. I look at it like the project, and I haven't blacklisted anyone, but some people are just easier to work with than others. I've been – I've so – I fucked up a lot. I think we we got six <laughs> hours of my life fucking up, and this this is no no different, right? So, but I think Carson hit it on the head in the beginning. When you're starting, is not where you end up, unfortunately, right? So, I've taken a lot of money from people I would never take it from again. How, I think the other question is, what would make me not use that lender again, right? And I'll say for me, hassle. I've done this a lot. And I, I regret it. And for the most part, it worked out okay for everybody. But I've taken money from unsophisticated people. I'm very, very, very unlikely to ever do that again. Because then what I get are all the calls, especially when I was doing a lot of rehabs in Detroit back in the day where every article was about how terrible Detroit was. And they start, well, man, we need to get out of this thing, man. I just read another article. And you're just like, fuck, that's not how this works, man. I know, I know news is coming out. Um, also, if they're slow, any sort of panic, um, having gone through everything that I've gone through, I throw something else on there, which is why I love Jeff. What if the deal goes bad? Is this the person I want to work with? That's the little, no, I throw that in there because now I know how bad it can go considering the mistakes I've made, Right. And out of everybody I've worked with, out of all my lenders, I had a handful rise to the top who, while not pleased with me and very unhappy, didn't do things to make it worse and attempted to do things to make it better. So now what I look at is, okay, if this project went to shit, do I still want to work with this lender? So there's a lot of people I wouldn't. And I don't use any hard money lenders anymore, mostly because it's unnecessary and I want to keep it in the family and also because they're fucking unreliable. A lot of times your deal will get killed. They'll tell you you can do one thing. We tried this with one of Tommy's. They run by, do an appraisal. They do a fucking bullshit lowball appraisal, right? Oh, no, we're going to take this appraisal. Like, no, that's, that's not going to work either. No. So we just, what, took our, took it off market for two and a half weeks to find out, you know, that's some bullshit. So no. And if I, I change my mind, if I run to somebody good, but I would rather work with people who I like, know, and trust. I'm going to pay a lot of interest. I'd rather my friends have it. And I'm always thinking if the shit hits the fan, is this the person I want to work with? And I've worked with people who actually put in work when the shit hits the fan, right? They weren't happy. That's, I'm not talking about that, but like they were, they, they rolled up their sleeves and they, they got to work trying to solve the problem instead of trying to make it worse by setting other shit on fire. So hopefully that answers your question. Mr. Ron Wallraven, do you guys use any software to track, create, or otherwise manage your rehabs? How do you do that? What do you guys use? That's been my biggest focus in the last few weeks is trying to organize and consolidate. 
and implement project management software. And then the end goal is get everything systematic in a software because every rehab is the same. You might take out or put in a few different aspects of construction. But other than that, you can set up a pretty standard structure going in. And if I can get that down, then that system, that software, I can turn it to someone else and they run it. So I'm starting to use um, some software to do that. What's the software? Asana. Asana? Which I got from Ron. Okay. So yeah, I got it's just from a, Ron. a basic task management software. It's nothing very specific, but the challenge wasn't finding. I was trying to find software. I downloaded 10. I didn't like any of them. And then I realized all the software is essentially the same. So the problem is not the software. It's how I'm thinking about and trying to use it. So then I just try to think about how to break down a rehab into the software and work at it backwards like that. But that's something I'm still in the process of, but I think can make me work once it's up and running, make it work a lot quicker, more efficient, and just give me a lot of quality of life. Tommy. We're starting to build out Podio. I got a lot of friends that use it. We use it on the acquisition side. Now I'm starting to build it out for um, rehabs. Okay. The best one I've seen is um, Builder Trend, but it's uh, 500 bucks a month. Ooh. It's it's nice though. And if you're doing a shit ton of rehabs, that might make sense, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice, and it keeps a lot of things in order, and it's already set up pretty good, but But I'm not there yet. How are you trying to set up Podio, or what are you trying to have it help you with? Well, I'm going to put all my rehabs – I'm put all my rehabs in and then set a bunch of tasks so that when – so in the beginning, you have to set up your scope and some kind of timeline, and then when people do stuff – I mean – the hardest thing is getting people to do it because it has an app. I mean, it has an app where you can, let's just say the plumber roughs in, right? He roughs in, he takes a bunch of pictures. All he has to do is open up Podio on the phone, open up the thing. Okay, roughed in plumbing, there it is, click, take the pictures, it's roughed in, click, take a picture of his bill, click, boom, goes to the bookkeeper. I mean, you can make it do whatever you want. The key is you can make it do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. And I have some guys that, you know, they have thousands of processes in there where they push buttons where you just tag something and 20 things happen automatically. You know, it sends emails, sends trust, texts and all that. But, you know, you're going to train your team to use it, but you got to use it yourself first. But quality of life can greatly improve. Yeah. So your, your goal is to try to have the subcontractors and people that you work that work for you a part of that system yeah, yeah. and communicate use, yeah, use through YouTube. Yeah, use it as well. and. I know somebody else that I met that does a lot of rehabs, and they have a full-time guy, and all that guy does is go to every job every day yeah. and take pictures. All he does, takes pictures and send them back. The guy who used to be our, the guy who used to be us sits in his office all day long and looks at the pictures and screams at the contractor. <laughs> yeah, you can never escape so that, that part is never going to stop. You could be comfortable in your chair <laughs> looking right. at pictures, yeah. screaming at contractors, though. This is moving up in the world, right? <laughs> Mr. Eric, what do you use to track? I use Podio and Asana. Okay. Both. Um, Asana, I think it helps for like just the visual and timeline um, and to be able to um, have your task and have those sent out. 
I like Podio just because of its functionality and you can do so much with it. Um, like you say, the key is just, it's, it's a lot of coding that goes into it to make things work. So you can kind of get lost in that. But yeah, I like both Podio and Asana. So are you, are you doing the Podio or do you got somebody? No, it's me. Yeah, I'm doing everything right now. Yeah. I'm also starting to implement Wonderlist. So the Asana and the project management is the 10,000 foot view. And then yep. the wonder list is the thousand foot view where I want to use that to create more simplified checklists for the workers. So it can break down their day or a few days or a week. And this is what you do. This is the order you do it in. If there's issues or things that you need, don't call me or text me, put it in wonder list. And that's how we communicate. So that's kind of the low level. And then the Asana project management is the high level. Okay. All right, folks. When I was doing it, um, I used, I don't even know if they're around anymore. It was project management software called Basecamp. I also had a big ass board, huge ass whiteboard in my office. So I would have where all the property, I'm a very visual guy. So I'd have all the property addresses and then religious about my, my calendar. I'd say it didn't work well though, but I don't think project management is my strong suit anyway, which is why now on the listing side, we have Brevity. And Brevity is a project management platform for listings and buyers. You can use it for anything, but it's primarily designed for real estate agents. I think it would work for wholesalers too. So whenever Kelly says, I send the email, say, here's this new listing we need, or here's this new buyer offer we have, she goes in the Brevity and she has a list for every fucking thing in the world and everything you have to do to check off. And that is the that's the 80% that the fine tuned stuff is done in brevity. And then the 20% goes on the calendar. Every inspection goes on the calendar. Every appraisal goes on the calendar. Every open house goes on the calendar. The day it goes live goes on the calendar. I got to be at a closing goes on the calendar. Got to go to a listing appointment goes on the calendar. So we use brevity and Google calendar for most of it. I don't know if brevity and that's B R. I-V or B-R-E-V-I-T-Y? Yeah. B-R-E-V-I-T-Y. It's for real estate agents. I don't know if it'd work for rehabbing, but you need... It's similar to Asana. Once you get about a dozen things going, keeping that shit on track, man, you, you need you need help, which is why I hired Kelly, and that's what she does. She goes through brevity every day. She does all the shit we need to do every day, and then Carolyn checks in once or twice a month and audits us to make sure we're doing it right. So if you suck at project management... You can always hire in a little bit of help too. You just got to make enough money to make it um, worth it. I tried also spreadsheets, but that didn't work for me because nothing update, updates automatically. I know plenty of people who can do it through spreadsheets. So I think that's a personal thing, right? So know thyself, I guess is what I'm saying. Know your strengths and weaknesses and try and get something that works for you. Um Hopefully that answered your question, Ron, although I feel like you could answer it better than us. All right, Mr. Marvin Rice. We, we attempted anyway. How do you guys mitigate theft during rehabs and between tenants? Crackhead screw. Yeah, I, that's what I use too. Um, actually, well, never mind. I don't even have anything on the, the most recent one. Uh, but yeah, I use security <laughs> systems and uh, that screw through the door. I think that really. What security system? Uh, I use Vivint, which is probably not the best. Um, 
you should probably go like Simply Safe or Simply something. Simply Safe's worked good. Yeah, um, Vivian, I lo- I really took a loss on the last one because it's a good system. Um, it has all the stuff. What's the name has it'll send police out and all that. But I didn't account for I had to pay for the equipment um, when I sold it. So after the sale, I had to pay off because you you lease the equipment to pay it um, when you're using it, and to exit the contract, you have to pay that equipment off. So when the new owner transfer or to, to transfer over ownership, that has to be paid off. And I didn't account for that. So I had to basically come out of pocket to pay that equipment off for her to have that hardware for the sale. So whoops. Yeah. All right. So I'll get you some I don't transfer. Do any security yeah, systems? I, I, I'm in the suburbs, which I think nothing no area is insulated from theft, but probably a lot less likelihood. I've never had appliances stolen or furnaces acs the only theft i've ever had is firing a contractor and coming back the next day and the house is cleared out yeah which that's something unless you're gonna go and lock up a house or sleep out there at night you know that's gonna happen if someone's gonna do that it's gonna just go burn down his fucking house with him in it and all the shit yeah i'm gonna make a claim yeah maybe that's just me tommy yeah, the screw, you know, the crackhead screw, that's that's it. And Describe the crackhead screw. No, not. <laughs> well, don't tell me what's on the if, end. If you want to, if you want to, if you Describe want to know the process. coming in, we, we drill, most of the houses that we deal with in Detroit have steel security doors, so we screw them shut. You lock it, then you screw it shut. And why do you screw it shut? Because the crackheads can't get it open to get shit out. And they very rarely will take stuff out the windows. I've had yes. people break the window, climb in the house, haven't been able to steal anything, had to climb back out the broken window. Yeah. So it cost me a window rather than cabinets and a furnace, water heater. And I don't leave furnace and water heaters in in properties at all. What about in the winter? And in the winter, we got we got a bunch of beater furnaces in there the warehouse. Yeah. And they go in, they go out. Beater hot water tanks too, right? If you need yeah, hot I don't need water, to use hot water. Yeah, no, they go in. You know, they go in after, way deep in the inspection process. Yeah, I've never had anything stolen out of a house. Thankfully, um, I have used the crackhead screw. I didn't know that's what that was called. <laughs> um, I have used that at one. Um, the other one, nothing. Just I had the alarm on. Um, what I like to do, and I don't know how much this helps, but I always like to know the neighbors. I build a relationship with the neighbors. I don't just come in and just start working on the house. The day of closing, I'm going over there and meeting the neighbors, talking to them, saying, hey, um, our company just bought this house. Just wanted to let you know, you know, we'll look out for your house. If you see anything, hey, here's my number. Reach out. Um, I think that helps um, the neighborhoods that I'm in. I'm probably um, – familiar with them a little more so i think that helps too um to see kind of a, a somewhat familiar face um and i'm always there checking on stuff so well here's all the things i've tried i used to board up all the windows <laughs> right and i would alternate every screw all you do is put holes in your windows right <laughs> so I tried no zone. I don't know what it is now. The steel doors, right? Vacant VPS, whatever. There's yeah. a bunch of them, bunch of options out now. And that worked for a little while until it drew attention to the property. And then they still broke into to the properties. So what I ended up doing at the end when I was flipping a lot was I had guys I would pay to sleep in the house 
And the only time they were allowed to leave were when contractors were there. And I paid them 20 bucks a day to sleep in the house. So, and that fucking worked. It's a little expensive, but if your schedules are tight and I would write into my general contractor's agreement. So that like I tried to keep everything in one spot, um, that requires a high level of management for all my clients. What most of them do now is they get a simply safe and that's simply with an I you can buy online home Depot. It comes as modules, right? And what they'll do is they'll get the alarm module. They'll get the area sensors. Most will skip the doors and the windows because they don't care if a door and window opens. They'll get the area sensors, put it up in several places on the first floor and the basement. Nobody climbs in through the second floor, but maybe if you want to. But what they do is they get two sound modules because what we actually had one time, this was at Steve's house. They took one of the, they filled up the bathtub, took the sound module and dropped it in the water. Wow. It's fucking genius, right? We'll put in two, put one in the second floor and one in the basement, right? Nobody wants to rob your house with enormous alarms going off. Um, that being said, I have some clients who go the extra mile. Um, it's the Wilcox brothers. I actually sold them my old uh, Saturn car for this too, but a lot of people do this. They will put cameras up so they can see who's outside but they also have a car they move from rehab to rehab and they park it in the driveway close to the side door on the house. And the idea is being you can't open the door, get it out the side door, and you're blocking the driveway from the back. So you're just making it additionally difficult to do. So I don't know. There's a sprinkling of shit right in there, right? From alarm systems to cameras to cars to paying somebody to sleep in your damn house. What we do with the alarms is we also buy a couple extra sound modules and we put them on the outside of there the house you go. facing the neighbor's second floor. Yeah. Because if it's going to happen at night, then that thing's blasting at their second floor in somebody's bedroom. Also, if it's really dark in your backyard or on the side, you may want to consider putting in a light. Um, you can kind of check that. Just drive by your house at night and see see how it looks. Can you see your backyard? Can you see the sides because if you're making all the noise but the neighbors can't see what's going on not very helpful i've also done what eric has done and that's helped sometimes i did catch one guy on a property with a shotgun that was no zoned he actually busts out the one window that wasn't no zoned he was so skinny I, you, it's like he had to be like 12 year old kid size and he climbed in my neighbors called me there was no other way for him to get out and i was out there with the shotgun it took 45 minutes for the cops to show up got that motherfucker but, uh, yeah, he found the one window. Like, I don't even know how he did it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, man, these guys, I've had them break in through the basement windows too and knock out the glass block. I'm like, fuck. Uh, but then if you have the door screwed shut, well, now, see, it's, I think, deterrence and noise. I think people get the idea. Like, some, I, I work with one guy who, who has this intricate system that bolts the furnace and the hot water tank to the floor. I'm like, well, by that time, I think you've lost, right? Like you're just trying to make it a big enough pain in the ass that they move on to another place. Anyway, I hope that helps, Marvin. All right, next question. Ruth Berklich, what windows and cabinets do you guys buy and the approximate costs? That I might date this a little bit, but let's let's do it anyway. So Cabinets. Like I said before, I get it from a supplier direct out of Adrian, Michigan. They have their wholesale name is different than the retail name. 
I'm not going to say the wholesale name, um, but I average about 150 a box across the kitchen, including, you know, the toe kick, the spacers, all of that. So a typical little galley kitchen, 10 cabinets cost it, it cost me 1500 bucks to get it delivered, but quality is a lot better than Lowe's Home Depot stock. Windows? Windows. I get, get windows from all side. Um, they're building supply place in Madison Heights. You have to have a builder's license to get it to order from all side, but most window places, I mean, it's a commodity standardized material everywhere is going to be pretty much the same price abc building supply for windows they got six different lines so they got windows that cost the same as home depot except you can get them faster and i think they're a little nicer to sky's the limit cabinets yeah we just we have a cabinet people that we just buy cabinets from unless of course it's a rental and then a lot of times we just... Do you want to plug your cabinet people? Blow them up or keep them to yourself? Oh, no. Um, Sharon Barnes is our cabinet person. Do we know? How do we get a hold of her? I guess we're going to give her a plug. Sharon Barnes. Look her up on Facebook. Yeah. Do you have her phone number? Anybody have her no. phone number? Oh, I got her phone number. You I got guess. her phone I number. Her phone on, though. All right. That's okay. Eric? Uh, I've never had to buy windows, so haven't used anyone in that space. Um, I've used John for cabinets. Um, I'd plug him. Um John who? John Idgins. Oh. Whoops. There you go. Sharon's after. Sorry, John. Um, You're fucked. <laughs> I've, I've used him. Um, but he's good, right? Yeah, yeah. He's good. He's, yeah. you know, he's reliable. You know, they weren't crazy. But um, I've also used a company out in Livonia called KDI, and it was about the same as what Carson is. I, I just spent about $1,400 for about 10 cabinets. So Okay. They're probably they're not top quality, but they're not they're better than Home Depot and Lowe's. You guys are all kind of targeting that mid grade quality. It yep. sounds like right, not the cheapest stuff, not the most expensive stuff. Yep. All right. All right next question, Monte Bertram. How do you determine the after repair value? I will also throw in return on investment because I know we got landlords in here too. So. Jeremy Burgess yeah. tells me the price. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I I do it my own. I, I I pull comps. I look at the the like a. I don't know if you know how to pull comps, but I pull comps and get an idea. And yep, I have Jeremy verify that. And What's your equation? Do you have one for ARV? Yeah, typically. I mean, I, if I'm just being real down and dirty real quick yeah ar uh wait for my offer or just yeah. for arv well so he just wants to know for your arv for right? my arv so i mean i'm looking at house i'm looking to find houses that have sold that are rehabbed how i would rehab a house um and then if i don't find something like that i just use it based off the price per square foot um so if it's a house that's 1,200 square foot, it's not quite rehabbed how I would. I look at that price per square foot, and then I might bump it up a little bit to to what I would think that I might be able to push comps to. And then I'll just, like I say, I'll typically send it to Jeremy and have him run his comps, and then I'll look at the two and say, okay. And I'm I'm typically conservative. conservative. I think Jeremy is too. So it, it just kind of helps. Um, if I know if conservatively I'm at a good ARV, then it's something that I, w- I want to pursue. How many comps do you feel comfortable with? Are you good with one or you want three or four? Or? Uh, depending on the area. Um, sometimes you only get one. Sometimes you don't get any that really would 
justify anything. You're just going out on a limb and you're kind of using the market to, to justify that. Um, other areas like Bagley, I want to see three or four of them because I know what's going on over there. But like the one I got most recently on Oakman, it's not really much that it's, it's not a standard house. It's not really much that is flipped, flipped over there. Um, but just based off the market, like conservatively, I know I can get a certain price for it. Yeah. Carson? I'm a little unique. We're probably 95% of my flips are within a two mile radius. Yeah. You concentrate so super heavy. Yeah. I, my comps are homes that I've sold most likely. So I don't, for the most part, I don't run comps. I already know what a three bedroom house in Hazel Park with either a basement or a garage goes for. And from that, I figure out what's the safe number for why no fully rehab. It'll absolutely sell for maybe 120 or 130 all day long. But my list price might be 140 or 150. See if I can get it. But I run my numbers off of my safe number where I have 99% confidence I could sell it for this on the flip. That's where I'll make my base, run my numbers off of, make my minimum profit. But knowing that I most likely will be able to push it. All right. Let me give you my down and dirty Monte. I run a lot of comps. I start wide and I narrow down what's wide for me. I will start at a half mile and I will go back a year for square footage. I'll go down 35% and up 35%. And before I even pick the house or anything else like that, I'll just start there. So I start very wide because I want to see everything on the market. And before I even look at sold prices, I look and see how many are active on the market and what our competition is going to be. I click through the pictures. I'm making sure the, like you're going to notice real quick too, when you're looking, there's going to be a couple high comps, some middle comps and some low comps, probably depending on where you're at. The high comps are the ones I'm usually interested in. Cause I'm usually working for flippers. Some of them right here, right here in this room, right? I want to know what the after repair value is. So you got to get very specific. School district, it's got to be in there. I try to use the closest comps and the newest comps, compare bathrooms, and compare finishes, right? If it says two bathrooms, a lot of times the premium comes with the extra bathroom. In some areas, it's the third bathroom, right? So you have to pay attention. Also look for other higher level finishes. Um, sometimes you'll see a lower price just because they didn't use pro photos. I know it's a funny thing to say. But that actually does matter. They have shitty photos like, oh, that's why that's lower. Or you go look at it and go, oh, my God, that is $50,000 in pavers in the outside, right? Like, or this has a $50,000 deck on the outside and this one doesn't. Some places, garages matter. Other places like Detroit, garages don't matter. But you definitely want a garage in Royal Oak. That's not even up for discussion. So some of it's knowing your market. The most important to me as I will also look – Scroll down when you're looking at the comps, you click through, you go down, it tells you the sold price and you want to see if there's any concessions, right? And it'll break it down to price per square foot. Then look at the days on market. You want to see if you're pushing limits, you're going to see conventional. And a lot of times you're going to see a price difference between FHA and conventional and with concessions. I know this is very fucking detailed, but I am 
telling people who are going to invest tens of thousands of dollars or hundreds of thousands of dollars in a property, I'm going to spend some time clicking through, looking on the pictures. If it's a corner house, that might affect it. Is it too close to the highway? That might affect it. I did one right off of 75, ended up not affecting it, but I, I braced them for the fact. So try not to go and this start like that wide, then narrow down. Is it a ranch? Is it a bungalow? Right. You'll see prices. Usually the highest per square foot are going to be ranches and colonials. Usually. Then bungalows, Cape Cods, then tri-levels, quad levels, weird shit after that. And then crawl. Some places got to have a basement. Some places the basement's got to be finished. Click through every single picture. Take time to do it. If you know it's the same person selling a lot of them, call them. You'll see that happen too. Like, oh man, what's this guy? We found one. I didn't call him, but you did. We're going through. This guy has sold like three or four oh, right there in yeah, Hazel Park, Park yeah. right? Like, do, do they know something you don't know? If I see one person doing a lot of stuff, I'll reach out. Say, hey, man, I see you're doing I got a listing coming, whatever. Try and build a little rapport, get some, some help that way. If you're in, a, we'll call it an opportunity zone, right? Because a lot of times the edges – of things in a rapidly appreciating market as Eric found out is where you can get a lot of bang for your buck. That's definitely a higher risk thing. And I want to see one person do it before generally speaking, conventional new, preferably less than 90 days. Two's better, but one's a minimum if you're going to push in and then work backwards off that one based upon square footage and the level of rehab. Keep in mind too, as you buy these things, if they go on the market before um, the 90 day rule too with FHA stuff, I know it's not happening for a lot of guys, but that will, that will limit your options as well. So pay, hopefully that, that helped. I will break it down to price per square foot once I do that. So I can multiply it by the square feet. That's technically not a hundred percent the right way to do it. But it works close enough most of the time that it's not a problem. So I guess what I'm saying, Monte, is you got to click around. You got to look at a lot of shit. I fucking hate running comps. Like some days I run 20 or 30 comps. I just fucking hate myself at the end of it. It's not a fun thing to do if you're doing it right because you're looking at everything. You're pulling it. I'll even pull it down to the spreadsheet. Look at You're just looking at so many things trying to figure something out, looking at amenities if it's different. Um, one thing I do love about Detroit, though, <coughs> over all the other areas, is there's really three houses. So it gets way more simple in Detroit. It's more about layout, right? You got your your colonial, your bungalow, and your ranch. If you're in some place like Waterford, you get fucked really hard, right? So you also need, Monte, people who are specialists in certain areas because how could you possibly know it all, right? So – for instance, I got Mr. Carson McGuire sitting right here in front of me. If I'm running Hazel Park shit, I am 100% going to run my number by him to make sure I'm close. And that's kind of how I've learned too. So don't be afraid, Monte, to – if you're in a new area or it's confusing or it's like Waterford, I'll reach out to Mark Tomes and ask him because he's been working in that neighborhood now for like eight, nine years. He's going to know things I don't know. So it's a combination of looking – and then when it gets too confusing, when you throw in lakes and years of build and new construction, then you got to reach out. This is why you got to network. You got to reach out to people who know more than you and get a second and sometimes a third 
opinion, especially if you're talking about investing your money or if you're an agent, you're going to be listing and telling somebody an after repair value. I know it sounds like a lot, but we're talking about lots of money. Anyway, hope that answers your question. Um, Next question. I was going to oh, yeah. say, um, in Detroit, um, you also have to look at the neighborhood really, really closely and the surrounding house. Well, at least I do. Yes. I look at the surrounding houses to Excellent see point. how the landscape is um, to kind of get ARV. Typically, you'll see the nicer blocks and you'll see why that house got what it what it what it sold for. Like Carson was saying, if he if he sees a house in Hazel Park, he pretty much knows it's you can't really do that in um majority of the neighborhoods in Detroit because like Morningside, for instance, you might be able to sell a house on some blocks for 80, 90,000 other blocks. You won't buy a house um, if they gave it or they, you couldn't even give away a house. So um, I always look at, if, especially when Detroit stuff, I look at the neighborhood, the, the block before the block after, and then the, the block that it's actually sitting on. That's a, that's an excellent point. Doesn't hurt to be careful. Don't be afraid to go drive them. I was doing that with Jay the other day too, especially if you're confused. Or a lot of times when you go look at the comps, there won't be any pictures because they're shitty agents, right? You got one or five pictures like, fuck, <laughs> that was helpful, right? So, hey, I know we're in the electronic age, right? But get in your fucking car, drive out, go drive them too. And that that is helpful. That'll cover your ass on the missing that the neighbor is has a used car part hobby, whatever, and he does in his front yard with his 40 cars up on blocks. You're like, fuck that house. So, all right, another question you don't have to answer, but uh, how do you guys deal with permits and other government bullshit? That's from Rob. permits. <laughs> 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 all right, next question. No, do we want to? <laughs> I mean, some, well, I shouldn't say some. I haven't encountered a city that made doing the right thing easy in terms of pulling permits. The one city I work in mostly can make my, even though I have a very good relationship with them, can make my life absolutely hell if I bring them into a house. So if I don't have to, there's really no reason why I would pull permits. But that being said, I buy a lot of homes that are tagged and on the demo, demo list. So for those homes, I have to pull all the permits, do everything the right way. But it's just that's a premium I put onto a house that I have to make X amount more to put up with it. But if I don't have to do it, I don't. But I pay for it sometimes. Yeah, sometimes you get caught, right? I get caught quite a yep. bit. But <laughs> I, I know it going in. It's a game. It's a game. It is a little bit of a game. Tommy? No permits. No permits. Eric? I, I'm, I work in Detroit, so. Yeah. Yeah. No. So I have a funny story. I'm going to keep it short because we have more questions. But I actually, when I moved here, I tried to pull permits in Detroit. <laughs> I know. It's so stupid. I actually hired a guy, too, just to do permits. We quit. We quit. It was not possible. Not possible to do. And back then, they actually did CFOs, and they had what they called uh, ACRs, Affidavit of Compliance Responsibility. Shakedown, right, for four ninety five or three ninety five, whatever it was. But then you had to schedule the inspection, they have them come out. They create this bullshit list of things you had to do and it didn't matter and you had to do it. So I gave up on all of it just out of sheer frustration. And I actually got shake shook down by him. So the guys went to jail because it was like four years ago when they took those eight guys, those eight city inspectors to jail. Three times I got caught and I got shaken down for $500 and I did it. So, and the problem went away and I was fine and I hated it, 
but you know, welcome to Detroit. So I don't know if that's what it's like now pulling permits. Cause I've, I've not done a rehab since 2012. So I've just wholesaled listed worked buyers. I did a wholesale deal with someone, but that was just like, clean it out, put it on the market. So I have not done a rehab in a long time. I'm still pretty traumatized by it. Uh, I had to get at one point I had to get a mouth guard for us grinding my teeth at night. Like, it is a stressful thing to have a lot of projects going and being ripped off and stolen and trying to get it to the market and all that. There's a reason why I call it hero money. So um, if I was in the suburbs and I was doing it, I think I would have had a much different experience. I probably would have been able to pull permit. It, would, it wouldn't have been the same, but I moved to Detroit. I lived in Detroit. I've never lived in the suburbs. I didn't even do a suburb deal till after 2012. So from 2005 to 2012, all I did was hundred percent Detroit all the time, lived there, worked there, hired there. So I don't have any of the suburb experience for flips or anything like that for pulling permits. I think uh, if you're in the suburbs, definitely pull permits. And in Detroit, I say, fucking do the best you can, right? Like, what are you supposed to do? I don't know what you're supposed to do. There's reality. And then there's what they want you to do. So just, if you're going to get caught, Take, take that shit like a man, you know? Even if you're a woman, you know what I mean. It's a euphemism, right? You're playing a game. You're going to pay up front, or there's a chance you might pay in the end. And make sure it's at least in your budget, right, that you can – if you get caught, you can afford to go down and pay the whatever. Anyway, there you go. Mr. John Wilcox, what color schemes are working better these days? Any changes from gray? Please say yes. <laughs> Has anyone started using new materials, flooring, tile, etc., that are starting to trend? Or do they stick with tried and true? And I think he's talking about for flips, but let's open it up to rentals too, just in case. So I'm still gray and white with my paint scheme, granite countertops, tile, porcelain, ceramic floors. Vinyl flooring, bathroom, same thing. Um, yeah, no, still same thing there too. Uh, no, yeah, I haven't really tried any new materials yet. Swiss mocha chocolate paint color. All right. Swiss mocha chocolate. Who's that from? Don't even know. Don't even know. Swiss mocha chocolate. Uh, Sherwin Williams, I think. Okay. Sherwin Williams. Yeah, I'm basic and boring but every my buyers are first-time home buyers they're fine with simple so i think it all depends on the market for example in ferndale you can get away with some more crazy funky things and i'll see some houses in ferndale sell really really well in terms of price look at the photos and they did things i never would have the balls <laughs> to do yeah. but that market they can get away with doing some weird stuff and it looks good in the end so know the market know the buyer Okay, so you guys are pretty much just doing your regular standard stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. All right, Tom Otterman, what are some wow factor things that you do in a rehab that don't cost a lot but go over well with buyers, renters, because they exceed their expectations? Anything that might meet that? Well, once again, like I said earlier, with hardware and faucets, just find stuff that people have never seen. Yeah, I think the the different fixtures, even if they're not expensive, just the non-standard Home Depot Lowe's fixtures, faucets, those things. Um, like I say, I I haven't done it yet, but I always 
since the first one, I've been looking to add the laundry on the, the third floor because I've only done colonials. I've been looking to add that. And if it's right off the bathroom, it's not a huge expense other than the like, appliances. I mean, the run for the plumbing is not that much more expensive. Um, and then also another thing I was looking at for this house on Drexel was a pot filler for the um, stove. I haven't seen that in the house, and I don't think it would be an extreme cost, but I think it would be something that people would come in and say, oh, that's something different. Hmm. Um pot filler over the stove the other thing that i can think of that i've done is under cabinet lighting and at costco they sell like 16 dollars for a six pack and they're little stick on things that you put under the cabinet and they have a little remote control so i leave i leave all the lights on and i take the remote with me so it's on all the time it's a 16 dollar thing and it costs five minutes of labor but sometimes i've heard buyers say that's kind of you know a little wow factor in the kitchen one thing I've noticed, a lot of open houses, especially in my first year and a half of paying attention to what buyers really, really like. Um, funny thing is, you know, those two flush toilets, they like having the two flush. I don't understand it. Like, oh, it's two flush. It sounds so silly to me. But when I was in there, it was like two flush toilets, um, can lights or the LED version fucking blows them away when you put them like, three in front of the fireplace or you put them in the kitchen like that kind of thing. Um, a lot of most flippers still don't do that. They'll just put in something else and they sell. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you're talking about wow factor, I will generally walk through them and be like, all right, man, LEDs, put a couple in front of the fireplace, put, put them instead of just putting like your row lights or your fluorescent lights in your kitchen or, you know, put in your LED or your can lights, um, also Tommy and Eric both hit on it, especially in Detroit with functional obsolescence. Can you turn that weird fourth bedroom into a walk-in closet with a master bath? Tommy's done that. Eric's done that. I'm sure you've probably done that at some point. Can you create a master bath situation and modernize the house and fix some functional obsolescence? That's wow factor. Oh, I have a bathroom right off my room, right? Or like a walk-in closet can also be, um, little wow factor if you're someplace where you're buying three hundred fifty thousand dollars home you're like every fucking house has this well you know what we're not talking about you all right and those are different wow factors we're only talking about the shit we're doing it's like 60 percent detroit 40 percent suburbs that's what i do so that's my experience southeast michigan five six counties whatever your market is that's go to open houses actually that's a good thing you're bored you want to see okay what flips are selling for right especially you don't have a real estate license and you're just getting started what level of finish should I have? You know what? If you will go, go to a bunch of open houses every weekend. You're driving around. You can go pull the list off Zillow if you want. Agent can send it to you. Start walking through. Start taking notes and start paying attention how long it takes them to sell for and what price. You will see some things rise to the top, and you don't even need MLS access for it. So I did sell a house on Woodstock. Yep, I know what's that. Yeah, you probably, you probably know the – uh, he did the same thing. He put in the under, uh, under cabinet lights. I don't know if anybody mentioned it, but it didn't cost anything. It seemed to go over uh, pretty well. Also, Tom Otterman for Wow Factor, something I am recommending more and more, especially as the market gets uh, more competitive. One Wow Factor you can do, and you can budget in ahead of time, is stage your property. Staging your property makes it look better for the photos. Makes it look better for the showing. That is a wow factor, especially depending on who you hire. Obviously, 
You'd want to work this into your budget ahead of time. You wouldn't want to be a surprise because usually staging is something like two grand a month or something like that, depending on the high end stage, maybe a lower end stage is like 1500 a month. So it's definitely an expense that adds up. But if you factor it in, you stage it and you go under contract, generally what I say is leave it staged until you're past the inspection period, then pull the staging out. So you can kind of limit, you know, if you got the right price and the right rehab, you're not going to be hanging out there for a while, but it does cost a lot of money. So trying to think if there's any other wow. There's also virtual staging. Where you submit a picture of the living room and then for about 30, 45 bucks a room, they will virtually stage it, you know, all digital. And then I've heard of people taking those pictures, putting a print, making it on a printout and then leaving that in the living room. So when buyers come, one, they see the furniture and the stage and the pictures. And then when they actually go to the house, they see the photo and it still helps them envision what the room could be. I've never tried that, but I have had some people pitch it to me. So that's an option as well. I've never done it. Yeah. I've never tried that one. I do like staging with real stuff because buyers don't have imagination and houses that are staged provided everything else is equal and the same actually sell pretty fast. So anything else on wow factor? I know Tommy also does like nicer handles on doors sometimes He's, he gets weird hmm. he's usually right though i will say that i don't know if it's like a sixth sense or whatever or whatever i don't know i was never that great at putting things together i was much better at like getting good deals and stuff instead of making the prettiest house when i was doing it so i didn't have the quote unquote touch it all got done but nobody was writing articles about me how pretty it was and how awesome everything was together all right from Tara Lynn, boxers or briefs? Here we go. <laughs> There's the funny question. Tara, I go with boxer briefs because I have big-ass balls. And <laughs> I don't like AC, and I just can't have that happening. I'm also <laughs> overweight, so I have big-ass thighs. This is a bad combination. I cannot do boxers. <laughs> but there's no way I'm doing tidy whities It does not work for me. So I split the difference, go with boxer briefs. Frugal loom because I have big thighs, and they make them bigger. <laughs> For those big thigh guys. There you go. I answered the question. Anybody else want to take a pitch at it? None. <laughs> yeah, with, with Dave as, as her husband, I don't know why Commando wasn't an option. And maybe it is. Maybe You know what? Let's make it an option. We can make Commando an option. So Tommy goes Commando. <laughs> Eric? Um, boxer briefs. Yeah, boxer briefs. There you go. See, we split the difference. The best of all the worlds. Um, that was all the official questions, but I have a few of my own I want to throw out there. We're at two hours and 10 minutes, so I think we have time, but raise your hand if we're running short because I'm not watching that close. What is it? You got to be somewhere at two though, right? Shield, so I, got, I can make it there. You think so? I 35 minutes? All right, I'll try, I'll try and make it quick. I wanted to ask this one. I need to start asking this one every, on every podcast, but what are the biggest rehabbing mistakes you guys have made? Um, I just want to th throw some and how you solve them, right? Like you made a mistake and what, what wouldn't you do again in the future? It could be really big or it could be really small. I think one of my biggest, especially early on was hiring the wrong people and keeping them around way too long after I already knew they needed to go. That cost me a lot of time and a lot of money and a lot of aggravation. I like that the red flag, if they're not doing it in the first part, why do you think they're going to do it? Like just fucking bail now, and right? A lot of times you've given them money, you feel like there's a sunk cost that you want to recoup, but you you burn more money trying to chase that little bit of money 
And it always goes more downhill, snowballs. So fire faster. Fire faster. Fire faster. Fire faster. Fire faster. Uh, I've made so many mistakes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I know. I was like, where to start? <laughs> I got narrowed down a little bit. Yeah, I mean, the uh, not accounting for the alarm system was one. Not firing people when I should have. Giving deposits when I shouldn't have. Like, the guy I gave a deposit to, we were – I was helping another investor work on their project, and he was working for them. He was doing okay work. Um, I asked him, could he go get some paint to finish? Um and he told me he didn't have the money to get it. It's like a forty dollar can of paint. That should have been enough. Yeah, right. To, there. to to not hire this guy, he didn't have forty dollars to get paint. Um, and I hired him. I gave him a twelve hundred dollar deposit, and he bought like six two by fours. Um, Were they nice? Were they really yeah, nice two by four? Hand carved. They were only two hundred dollars. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I so, made the, the mistake yeah, of not. Considering the landscape, um, big trees, big trees are one thing, but think about where those trees are and where the sewer line runs. I don't get sewer scopes before I buy. I was going to say, so I was trying to be a little more cognizant after doing two digs in a row. Um, I've also bought homes in the winter that were very low on the grade. It had major water problems when the spring came around. So not taking into consideration the fact that. On an acre lot, this the house is sitting on the lowest point and has a crawl space. So, shit, I made a mistake on. I've missed several roofs in the winter because of snow. I actually just started throwing the snow factor in. Something people might not want to consider. I did this twice. I know it's embarrassing to do it twice, but I did it at the same time. So it's not like I did it and then I did it again. If this back in the REO days, if there's a boiler. And that thing has gone through a winter. I don't care if it's been winterized. I will just say go to Forest Air. Here's what I had happen to me twice where the boiler system and they allegedly winterized it, right? But once you go back in, I had pinhole leaks where it took six to eight weeks for it to be obvious where the leak was. Three times I had to go back to this house and replace drywall and replace pipe. And it still kept ruining my life. I ended up selling it for a loss as is. Second time, I did manage to fix it. But something to consider, if it has a boiler and it's been through a winter vacant, you might want to pressure test it. But I don't know if it's a pinhole leak, you might not even catch it then. Or you might just want to throw in some extra money to your budget. To Carson's point, always get a sewer scope or... Just throw in three grand for, for tearing it up, right? It doesn't usually pop open. A sewer scope's like 150 bucks. It's not that big of a deal to get it done, but it's potentially a three grand mistake. Probably less if you hire it out, yeah. but it could be three grand if you gotta gotta do gotta do everything. In I've on also that. tried to when I'm when a rehab is complete and on the market, keep the water off at the meter. Nothing good comes out of leaving the water onto the house before the inspection. Go turn it on, turn it off after, but. I've paid the price of houses flooding out. Yeah. No one going there for days. I had that happen to Buckingham. 3708 Buckingham. The plumbing on the second floor burst. Oh, yeah. My contractor covered it because the rehab wasn't done yet and he had to go back. But man, that was bad. It cost us uh, another one. I bought one at the tax auction that 
didn't have a water problem. And the day after I bought it, I went back out there and somebody in the meantime, since I'd gone out and gone install some shit, water was pouring out the basement windows. So yeah, I didn't sell that one. Walked away right then. So <laughs> 3,500 tax auction gowns, like going to the casino. Yeah. Also um, with kind of relating to tax auctions and just checking in with the city because I've bought homes where they've been tagged to be demolished and someone at some point took stickers off the house. So it wasn't known, but if I went ahead and do, did a little bit more due diligence and a lot of times you don't even have to talk to the city. You can go on BSA website and pull up any inspection reports, building, building department reports, see if there's any dings or any past dings that has helped me. And there's been times where I've haven't done it and forgot about it and I paid for it. Also, if you're buying in Detroit, this happened to Eric. Make sure in your title commitment, it doesn't take exception to blight tickets. Even if you're already paying for blight tickets on there, and if nobody's checking for blight tickets, check for blight tickets. Because, Eric, did they make you pay for other people's blight tickets? No, but they did try. Okay, they tried. Um, Mostly Michigan Investment, they fixed it for them. Okay, um, they did. But, yeah, they were trying to. Yeah. We've had it happen several times where you're – you. You're having a high stakes game. You're heading to closing, and oh by the way, here's this blight ticket that pop up at the last second, eighteen hundred dollars. That was pr- from prior to you even owning the house. Yes, that so. should have been caught on the purchase. Yeah, so just be careful. Also, b- uh, besides blight tickets, just tickets in general, depending on the city. If you're using a good title company like Michigan Investment Title or First Centennial Title, if you're in Southeast Michigan. Th- this is one of the reasons why I know they annoy people sometimes, but they really go the extra mile digging through shit to make sure you're, you're generally not getting fucked. Right. And if you're in one of these commie cities that hate investors, which is pretty much everywhere at this point, they've got grass tickets. They've got blight tickets. They've got all sorts of shit. Double check, make sure, or just go with a good title company from the get go. Cover your yeah, ass. Yeah. Watch out for them water bills. Water bills too in Michigan. Yeah. Don't take a quick claim deed. There, there you go. Unless you know what you're doing. Um, what would you do differently, knowing what you know now, rehabbing, starting all over again? So, if somebody's listening and they've never done a rehab before, right, and they got all this anxiety, just listen to this whole podcast. What would you have them do differently that you didn't do when you started? For my Specifically just for myself, if I could have started rehabbing without ever touching a hammer, I think I would be 20x where I am now. That doesn't relate to everyone. I'm my own roadblock 99% of the time. For someone new, I'd probably recommend starting out as best as you can on a small, simple rehab because you don't know what you don't know. And there's so much in construction that even people have been in construction for years don't foresee it's so difficult to start out in a big rehab and i can't imagine i couldn't imagine starting out on a big rehab now with my experience and it's just i feel for some people that i see that try to do that that's good advice even if they've never done a deal before and they're waiting for deal don't wait for the right rehab wait for wait for the right project also learn and talk to anyone and everyone that you can in the meantime and just there's going to be try to walk sites with people Try to learn what what people who know what to do or know more than you, what they see, how they look at homes, how they look at, you know, 
the house itself and just learn as much as you possibly can. Yeah. Don't be a douchebag. It's one of the reasons why I tell people to network because you can go network, find out who's doing stuff, become useful, be their friend, ask for help, go do a walkthrough. Most people, if you're not an ass clown, will take some time if you're flexible and help you out too. So if you've never done one, network first, identify some people, go to some open houses do some follow-alongs with the Carsons, the Tommies, the Erics, or whoever is in your market that you identify, um, and that can help you get set on the right path, too. I like you say pick the right rehab. I emphasize that one a lot, too, especially – I think it's always important, but especially when you're beginning, pick the right rehab. Pick the right rehab. Tommy? Well, certainly don't try to scale too fast because once – you know, yeah, pick the right rehab or not pick the right rehab. I'd I'd say the best advice was to pick a smaller one than a bigger one. But just- well, actually, you and Carson both stack up rehabs and wait on them, don't you? You guys both have uh, yeah, we, yeah. You know, we we a deal's a deal, I guess. A deal's a, yeah, it's a- well, yeah, and then there's George, right? In Westland, was he's got like two hundred sitting yeah. that we nobody knows about yet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't. I mean, whenever whenever I see a deal pop up that I can't buy. In in the areas that I buy, it just kills me. But I figure that's the price I pay for going slow on a house. That's, that's a penalty. Okay. But if I have the cash and something pops up, it sometimes it's an issue, but I'll buy it and I'll sit on it if I have to. I don't like letting opportunities escape me. Yeah, especially when you're flipping because it's kind of like feast or famine, right? And we've all been through the famine and now it's kind of like feast time. So if you get one, you're like, you hop all over it, strangle it to death. It's mine, mine alone. Eric? Um, honestly, I wouldn't do anything differently just because I did. I felt like I picked the right one. Um, I was wholesaling um, before that, so I walked through a lot. Um, and even the first one that I had that I didn't get, it would have still been a good one to do. But, yeah, the, the very first one that I did, I <laughs> – yeah, I don't have any regrets on it. Um, I wouldn't do anything different um, other than maybe start getting into the business sooner. But yeah, as far as the rehab process, no, I was I was anxious, but I also just didn't jump at the first opportunity. I was real meticulous in what I would pick. And I mean, the first one was the, the guy wanted to buy. He wanted to sell it for 25 grand and, and it was in East English Village. And the house, I could have sold it. I could have bought it and sold it for 60, 70. I knew it was a deal. So, and it didn't need much work. ARV was 130, 140, I thought. It was a no brainer. So, I didn't really have, luckily, um, it's nothing I would change about my first one. Well, folks, I would recommend that you network. Shocker, right? Network, have some discipline. And if you're just starting out, this always seems harsh, but I like to nail this point home. Do you have any self-awareness? Are you the person at work that people can rely upon? If you're not that person, if you're clocking out three minutes early, if you're staying five minutes late on the break, if you're seeing how little you can get through in a day, or, or if you've ever said, that's not my, that's not my job. I always like to remind you to start there because you're going to take that bullshit with you. And let me tell you whose responsibility it is. And the answer is always you. So I've seen that take out more people than having the after repair value wrong than having the re I've seen smart people work their way out of, out of a terrible mess and do fine. 
It's because they had a good head on their shoulders and they had good self-awareness of what was going on around them. And the reason why I say that is when I started, I stretched on my first deal. I turned out to get lucky, but I stretched. I stretched on the rehab. I stretched on the after repair value. I just wanted to get a deal done. Turns out I did okay on it because the market just got, you know, a rising tide, you know, everybody. And I did fine. I didn't, I didn't know that at the time it came back to fucking haunt me. Um, but I would like to, to throw that out there for people to have some self-awareness of what you're at. You know that if you're feeling something like I'm not the guy at work, people rely upon who's going to fucking lend you money and why can you rehab a house? But it doesn't mean you can't just start, be the person at work that can start getting shit done and be reliable or at home, the piece of shit spouse. Yet nobody's going to lend you money. Nobody, you're not going to get a rehab. You bring your damn problems with you. Do you procrastinate all the time and you can't get anything done? What makes you think starting a rehab project is all of a sudden going to turn that shit around, right? So be careful the problems you bring with you because quite often those are the problems that take you out above and beyond the additional risks you're incurring and making sure your after repair value is correct and all that. And if you really don't know what you're doing, network, find somebody who can really help you with that after repair value as well. Because I stretched it and I had people willing to lie to me to sell something. I mean, it's a shocker, right? So network, network, network. Did you guys have anything that you wanted to share? Because Tommy's got to go. So I do want to wrap it up. I'll plug you guys at the end. But if there's anything we didn't cover, anything you want to get out there on rehabbing or investing? No, I don't have anything. If you want to get in this business... Do your homework a little bit, but just go buy a house. There you go. Good. All right, folks. I want to take a moment to thank Tommy O'Neill, Carson McGuire, Eric Friday. They took time out of their busy ass day to come share uh, all their information, answer your questions, help you out. So go check them out as well. We got Carson McGuire at facebook.com forward slash Ridge Investment Properties. Or you can go to his website, CarsonBuysHouses.com. You got Mr. Tommy O'Neill at IPM Detroit. IPM Detroit. You can email him at the same Tommy, T O M I E, at IPM Detroit or 504-975-2300. And you got Mr. Eric Friday on Facebook, just Eric Friday on Instagram, Real Estate Friday. And of course, his website, DET Property Solutions.com. You can email him the same. Let him know. If you appreciate it, check out their stuff. Maybe there's something you guys can do together. I really appreciate you guys doing this. If you enjoy the podcast and you find it helpful and you'd like to support it, there are some ways you can do that. First and foremost, rate and review on iTunes. It's one of the small things you can do. It goes a long way. Share the podcast on social media with others or in real life too, right? You could also hire me to list and sell your house for top dollar. If you're looking to buy a house, personal or investment property, you can hire me to do that. You can refer some sellers or buyers to me. And of course, you can always send me your wholesale deals. We're working on that more too. Every little bit helps and I really do appreciate it. Guys, you can hit me up at renegadedetroit.com. If you ever want to attend any of the local meetings, go to meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit investment club network. If you're in Metro Detroit, First Tuesday of every month at Shields Pizza, except for July. We have no July meeting. You can always call me, 313-600-2133. And my plug for Mr. Joe Randall, Mortgages by Joe Randall. 
this wonderful podcast table that we're on right now. He is the one who bought it for us. Thank you, Joe. And if you're interested in getting a loan, Mortgages by Joe Randall. A lot of us use them. Give them a shot. See what you think. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need. Yeah, I know you're a piece of shit. You're not doing everything you need to fucking do. You know it too. You know what? Start. Tommy had it right. Start. Just start. I don't care if it's brush your teeth, clean your room, run some comps, go to open houses, do better at work, be a better husband or a wife, right? I know there are distractions, mistakes, poisonous people, bad habits that prevent you from starting and sticking to your goals. Pick something, stick with it. Don't give up and do something every day. Till the next podcast, till the next meeting, crush it. <laughs>